Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag your mind Good evening everyone Welcome back to the Maverick News Channel. Hello, Maverick family and new viewers. Thank you, everyone, for spending time here again together with me and everybody else. We have a lot to talk about. We will talk about JT. Yeah, Mr. Fancy Socks is under more pressure to resign. Will he do it? I don't think he's ready quite yet, but as pressure mounts, we get closer and closer to that day, that inevitable day when collectively the liberals and the rest of the country get to say, take off, hoser. That's the first thing that came to mind to today when I heard about this liberal heavyweight, as he's being described. Uh, saying that Trudeau should give serious consideration to stepping down. We told you a few days ago that there were liberal insiders, serious liberal insiders who are talking like this. I told you several days ago that if his poll numbers don't improve, he might end up resigning early in the new year. And I know that many people are skeptical. Some people just outright didn't believe me because that's not uncommon. I say things, people say, you're lying. That's not true. And then it comes true. And I don't deal in conspiracy theories. Not really. Can I say he is going to resign? No. But did I say that he's under inside pressure to do so yes and now we're seeing that pressure from within bursting out under pressure we'll show you what else are we going to talk about we are going to talk about well i i think we'll talk a little bit about tyler christopher the actor who died of a heart attack. We are going to talk about the NDP in Canada supporting the conservative uh, move to pressure the government for a carbon tax freeze across the board. Big, that's It's a big deal in Canada. And I'm sorry, my American friends who are tuning in tonight, um, but we got to talk about that because that is another thing that will put more pressure on JT to resign. And that's something that is important to a lot of people and of interest to a lot of people, regardless of you, maybe even you're a liberal and maybe you want him to go too. And it's important to the whole world because he is the poster boy for the WEF, the globalists, Klaus Schwab, and Klan. Oh, yeah, Tucker Carlson today 
visited Julian Assange. Yeah. And I'm hoping that we can talk about hope because I'm just going to share something that happened to me on a personal level today. Not that it's a story about me. It's not. It's uh, something that it was a conversation I had with someone that I'm going to share with you that might give you all some hope. It gave me hope. It brightened my day. It was just a casual conversation. I, and it, after three years of craziness, it was like a ray of sanity that just broke through the clouds, burst, burst the, through the sky, came in and brightened my day and changed my outlook on humanity in a very positive way. It made me want to sing. I'll, I'll tell you all about it. And maybe it will have the same impact on you that it had on me today. It was inspirational. And the lady that I spoke was speaking with had no idea that she was filling my heart with joy. Had no idea. But she did. And I want to share that joy with you tonight. I will do that when we come back. Right after this. Don't go away. I'll be right here. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others. Out. Of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals. Individuals. Defenders of individual rights. And freedoms. Credible. Trusted. Grounded in reality. Maverick News. Maverick News. Defending free speech. Free speech. Donate. At freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow. Maybe too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching. watching 
There I am. I popped back on the screen and I am with you again. All right. You know what? I'm going to throw out all the training that I had as a journalist and I'm going to do it all backwards, upside down and twist it inside out and sideways. You know, they always say, you know, you have to, what's your lead story? Your lead story is supposed to be the big story of the day, you know? Uh, lead with your strongest stuff, though. But see, that's the thing right there. You're always supposed to lead with your strongest stuff. So I'm, I'm at odds with myself. And what do I lead with? You know what I'm going to lead with? I'm going to lead with that story of inspiration. Because it's not the biggest story that's out there today. But in my mind, my little mind, it's the most important. And I want to share it with you. I went to the post office. I went to a store. And uh, while I was there, I met a lady that uh, I know. She's a friend. And I had a conversation with her. Now. I got to rewind here a little bit now because this is a pandemic vaccine crazy mania story. And uh, while I was there, this lady, well, I'll just rewind because you got to go back and you have to remember, as you all do, the pandemic and the mask mandates and the vaccines and all this stuff. And, the, and so... When I go, when I rewind and I think back, this lady that I know, she, I'm going to, I'm not going to tell you her name. doesn't matter. I'll call her, uh, we'll call her Persephone. Okay. Her name's Persephone. So Persephone, cause that's a good name. Persephone is a good friend. Of mine. She was very, really scared when the pandemic hit. Petrified like so many other people. And Persephone's, you know, she's no spring chicken. She's kind of like me getting up there in, in years. Um, but you know, maybe not. Well, I won't say that she, she just like so many other people really, really scared. And, uh, so she would go to work, she'd go out, she'd always have her mask on. And, uh, you know, I used to see her from time to time out in public because she just, we just meet, you know, in passing like that. And uh, during the pandemic, man, she was with the people on the the, le the left wing woke side all the time. Like she was like, oh, my God, like, you know, this is I saw somebody and they weren't wearing a mask. And I'm standing there not wearing a mask, of course, you know. And, um, you know, I remember one day I met her at the same place, ran into her at the same place. This was during the pandemic. And of course, I didn't have a mask on. And uh, she says, where's your mask? I said, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Because I knew if we talked about it, it was going to turn into, you know, something negative. And I valued my friendship with her. So I, I didn't want to jeopardize a friendship over something stupid, like a stupid mask thing. And so we just let it slide. And we've always gotten along and everything's been pretty cool. But she would 
scoff and get angry and get upset and get scared when she saw people without a mask. And yeah, she got the thing in the arm. A couple of them. She sure did. And you know, it was at it's at the drugstore down the street where I run into her quite a bit. And uh, that's where people go. They line up to get their, their juice, right? Well, of course, a lot of time has passed. How many years has it been now? I lose track because I sit here every night and it seems like time just flies by. It certainly does. The older you get, the faster it goes too. Well, today I went in and I just, and she happened to be there and we had a conversation and of course she's not wearing a mask now. And there were people lined up to get boosters. Ah. You know what she said to me? She said, I'm done with that. I'm not getting that anymore. Not going to do that. Uh, what are you talking about? All the people lined up over there. Ah. Uh, I'm not doing that anymore. She said, I got, uh, I got, I can't remember how many. She said three, I think two or three. And, uh, and then we had a conversation about it and she's just decided, nope, nope, not more, no more for me. She said, she said, you know, it, it, uh, it doesn't, doesn't continue to work. You have to get it all the time and I'm just done with it. And she said, and I said, well, you know, did, did you ever get sick? with the C thing. And she said, yeah, yeah. She said, I did. I got sick for like four months. I said, well, I got sick. I got it. I was sick. You know, I tested positive. I was ill. I was ill for about five days and then I got better. It was not fun. It was like a really bad flu. So I was like five days. She was four months. But she said, you know, I'm done with it. I'm not doing it anymore. And she was filling my heart with hope and, and joy. You know, not because she's not getting it, but because, you know, it just, it's about choice. It's about, um, it's, it's about choice. That's really what it's about. And it's about, it showed me that people can change their positions on these things. And they are. And she wasn't coerced. She wasn't browbeaten. I, and I never got into an argument with her. Uh, just over time, she just reached a logical conclusion for her. The other people lined up to get their boosters. They're making their own choice to do whatever it is they want to do. And she asked me, she said, did you ever get, did you ever get it? And I said, no. And she didn't judge me anymore. But I know that a long time ago when I was in there and I wasn't wearing a mask, I could tell she was scared and she was judging as everybody did back then. And admit it, most of you probably were judging the other way too. And we probably still are. Most of us, when we see someone out still wearing a mask, right? But we're kind of finally getting over it and 
getting beyond it as people. And I know that still a lot of concerns and so much still that has to be worked out over time, but look at the progress we've made um, in our communities, in our personal relationships with people. We are able to talk to each other again about it. At least I can with her without it being an argument and she's kind of come around to the other side on her own through observation, reaching her own conclusions after seeing what has gone on. And uh, she said, you know, the last time I got it, got the juice, Persephone said that she, she got really sick. So she doesn't want to do it anymore. She's not going to do it again. Said it made her feel terrible. A side effect. But she's okay. She seems to be okay now. But she's, you know, in her, she's decided. Not good. Not good for me. Don't need it anymore. Not going to do it. So, yeah, that, that gave me a lot of, a lot of hope and inspiration. And, and I was so grateful that, uh, you know, things have sort of progressed this way and that we're, we're at a place now where we can just talk about it without all the emotion. And we're going to have a civil conversation. We can all get back to that place. That was very clear to me tonight. Did we learn the important lessons from this? Probably not. I'm not convinced that human beings, after going through what we just went through, I'm not convinced that human beings ever truly, collectively, on a large scale, ever really learn the important lessons. It seems like we are doomed to repeat so much in history and doomed to, to, to make the same mistakes because so much is emotion-driven with human beings where rational thinking goes out the window as soon as people become fearful, angry, the, the, the adrenaline and, you know, the emotions, they, they cloud your judgment. They make you go crazy. And so people make bad choices and say stupid things and do stupid things. that I think they tend to regret later. Once they calm down and they can think rationally again. And I was upset. There were times when I wanted to say things to people that I knew I might regret later and I'm so glad that I bit my tongue. There were a couple of times though when I did get a little emotional with folks. Especially, you know, in the first year when we were under those lockdowns and I was like, how dare you treat people like this? This is wrong. And, you know, when I saw it was, it wasn't even the people complying that got me so upset. You know what really, really, really stuck the needles in me. And I'm talking about the needles of pain. It was seeing people just regular everyday people like Walmart greeters, or cashiers at stores who so willingly acted as enforcers, as COVID cops, 
for the state. Ensuring compliance through shame, through coercion by prohibiting people from entry into places or with, with, with refusing service and complying with that. I, that just oh, still gets me fired up. Thank God we're getting back to a place where we can still have conversations. And thank God these predictions of, you know, widespread lockdowns coming back right now so far have not come true. Remember, it was, uh, was got to be six or eight weeks ago. Alex Jones was saying lockdowns are coming back and, you know, mask mandates, blah, 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 blah. And Chris Sky came on and he was making the same predictions. And that got people all jacked up. People's memories are short, though. Remember that. Those predictions of lockdowns that got everybody fired up again about six or eight weeks ago hasn't come true. And I don't think people are ready for it. I don't think people would. I think if it happened right now, I don't think people would comply. Not in the same way. Nope. Yeah, you still have some, but no. I mean, my friend, Persephone, I don't think she would either. And she was scared, but people are wising up. So, yeah, man, it um, filled my heart with joy today. Now, I have to say, though, that I am still worried, disappointed, disturbed to see the polarization on this newest thing, which is an old thing recycled again too. this divide over Israel-Palestine and the rise in anti-Semitism. Yeah, and I'm seeing this as a test for people too. You know, we, we failed the test, right? As a, as a community, as a society, as countries, we failed when the pandemic came around because the test was will will not just will you not will you comply it it was really more will you enforce will you pressure other people to stay locked down masked up and juiced up and those measures were an assault on our personal, our individual rights and freedoms. And so many people were just like so willing to throw them away and make sure that they were taken away from everyone else around them. As a, as a society, we failed. It showed that we, as human beings, are vulnerable to those kinds of pressures through information warfare so that we make bad decisions, make the same mistakes that were made in the past in places like Germany in World War II. Failure. We failed. 
we failed the test. I'm not even sure if the same test was administered today. I'm not sure that people would pass this time because what I'm seeing is this Israel-Palestine question, it's the same test. It's just a different question. Seems to me that a lot of people on both sides again making the same mistake, failing again. It disturbs me. Nevertheless, as the dust settles after the pandemic, not that it's over, but some of the dust has settled. And already now, today, I did stand in this ray of sunshine that had broken through the storm clouds. For that, I am grateful. And for this moment, I'm full of joy. Fear not the storm, for truth is on our side. Maverick News. The world is watching. The New World Order. Government Overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream media lies. Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now at freedomreporters.com. That's freedomreporters.com. Maverick News. The antivirus program for your mind. Okay, top story number two. Take off, hoser. That's what came to mind today. Take off, hoser. Justin Trudeau. Can he take a hint? No. Will he take a hint? Maybe. It's a coming. Whether he likes it or not, it's coming. Um, not a moment too soon for a lot of you, I'm sure. Uh, but he's on the way out, folks. What am I talking about? Well, you know what I'm talking about. So today, a liberal loyalist. Well, here, let me show you the, uh, the headline out of CTV. Mainstream media picking up on this, finally. Told you a few days ago, said, uh, don't lose faith. Don't worry. It's coming. JT might just end up resigning. If his poll numbers don't approve, I think he will. There's pressure inside the party. And that pressure became apparent today, again, in a big way. Let me show you the story. There you go. Okay. Wish him all the best. Trudeau dismisses liberal loyalists saying party would benefit from a new leader. Let's scroll down, shall we? Let's see what they're saying. So Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says here is dismissed a longtime liberal 
and current senator's suggestion that it may be time he stepped down to make room for a new Liberal Party leader. Aha! You see, I told you there are real people with real power within the Liberal Party who have been talking like this, and now it is out in the open. This coming from Senator Percy Down. He went public with his views amid a downward trend in the polls. Economic unease and rumor mills churning about potential liberal leadership contenders readying to replace him. So this was in a radio interview on the Vassi Capello show it was on uh, today. And he says, Down says he's hearing from, quote, many members of the caucus who are concerned and they're and consider the time between now and February as critical for the party to conduct some internal soul-searching about the best path forward. Uh-huh. Told you. Told you. that I lie? I didn't lie. No, I did not. I told you the truth, as always. It's quite widespread, Downey said, or Down said. And so what... When asked why no other liberals have said publicly what he claims they're, they've communicated privately, the senator said they can't for a range of reasons. Uh-huh. Because they'll get it in the, in the neck if they do from JT, including the fact that the party leader signs their nomination forms. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's very difficult for them to do, he says, to do that and not see their careers go down in flames. That's right, because JT is a pretty authoritarian kind of guy. I, he says, I would like to hear Mr. Trudeau address the concerns in the party publicly. So you know what this is. This is, um, this is an inside Liberal Party trial balloon. And they've, uh, they've handed that off to this guy, this senator, to float that balloon out there to see what the reaction will be. So we'll see what the reaction from JT will be. Well, as I said, also said in the piece, the Liberal Party owes Justin Trudeau tremendous debt of gratitude. We were in third place when he ran for the leadership. He uh, took the party to first place, won government, and has been government ever since. But there's a sense in the party, and I'm sure nothing in my op-ed was a surprise to you, I see you talk to MPs all the time, and I'm sure many of them have said privately to you what I said publicly, but there's a sense uh, in the Liberal Party that there should be a discussion about where the party is going, and that discussion should be over the next 16 weeks. In case Justin decides not to run again, um, there will be time for a leadership and a new, and a new uh, leader to step forward. I wanted to parse apart um, a little bit of that and ask first about a move to the center. Why do you think a move to the center, regardless of, we can separate the leader discussion in a sure. second, but why do you think a move to the center is necessary to counter the Tories? Well, the traditional centralist liberals always are in favor of fiscal responsibility. So we have enough money to fund the much needed social programs across Canada. And you look at what has happened to the debt in Canada over the last uh, number of years, six, seven, eight years, it's, it's gone up over 70% of the national debt. That is not sustainable. And so there's a sense among many members of the party, we need more fiscal discipline, fiscal responsibility. 
the liberals haven't been central or centrist in my lifetime ever. No, no, they have not been. They've, they've always been left. Um, not as left as they are right now. So yeah, a little move closer to the center. Yes. But to the center, not a chance. Even the conservatives under Pierre Polyev right now, well, you know, they're shifting closer to the center. I don't know if they're there yet. We'll see if he gets into power. We'll see if they truly are more centrist. But no, in my estimation, no. Is JT and the fancy sock liberals, are they anywhere near the center? Oh, oh. they've never been so far left. They've been pulled pulled way to the left by the NDP and to Jack Amit the Singh. Yes, they have a bean. And um, here's JT today. I'm on his way into, I think, question period. And uh, we've got this clip. Again, this is a CTV thing, so I'll share it with you. But to give uh, attribution here and credit, this is a CTV clip. And this is him responding to that uh, liberal senator saying, perhaps it's time for you to take off, hoser. Here he is. He's calling on you to step down. Sorry, who's that? Senator Down, a former oh, sorry. former Percy staffer Down? for Jean Oh, Percy. Percy. Oh, yeah. How's yeah. he doing? <laughs> oh, well, this is this. I, I uh, wish him all the best in the work that he's doing. Uh, he's 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 doing. $50 million. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was it. <laughs> oh, I wish him all the best. Who? <laughs> Uh, yeah, the guy that wants you to leave, dude. The guy who's saying, take off, hoser. Hey, uh, you uh, take off there, hoser, eh? Uh, it's time for you to like take off from the Great White North there, eh? Get the heck out of here, hoser. That's, that's the way I saw it today. The very, very Canadian thing. Very, very Canadian. You know, everything is shifting now suddenly. This carbon tax thing, this flip-flopping thing on the carbon tax, that's actually hurt him. Trudeau, I think, yeah. Uh, it's It showed that there's a real, real erosion and support, a crack, you know, developing in his, uh, his body armor, his political Teflon scraping, you know, finally scratching and falling off. He flip-flopped on that, said that he's uh, going to pause that carbon tax on home heating oil. That backfired because he didn't, he's not doing the same for people who use natural gas or other fuels or gasoline in their cars, only home heating oil, because it was absolutely just a political stunt designed to shore up public support and stop his huge slide in the polls. And now, you know, seen as a political stunt, it's coming back to bite him on the butt. So tonight, it really is coming back to bite him on the butt because, let me show you. Well, here's another mainstream media article. That Not that it's restricted to the mainstream, but here's the headline. This is from Global. And the NDP is going to support the conservatives on this. 
remember the NDP has this agreement with JT to support him. It's like a coalition government. Okay. So if on this question, they're now supporting the conservatives and Pierre Polyev, the leader of the conservative party of Canada, who is calling for across the board carbon tax pause until they can have an election, a carbon tax election. The NDP is going to support that. That's, that's a huge crack in Justin Trudeau's support and his armor. Without the NDP, the liberals cannot survive. If the NDP moves over and supports the conservatives, Justin Trudeau's days are definitely numbered. This is really, really, really bad news for Monsieur Fancy Socks, Mr. Leader Hose, Hosen Leader, the leader of the Hosen, the Hosers of the Hosers. Mr. Hoser himself may be stepping down a very soon. And here's Pierre Polyev uh, calling for the carbon tax and a price thing again. There you go, Mr. Polyev. Go ahead, Pierre, and say your thing again. That the common sense conservatives have put forward a motion in the House of Commons extending the pause on home heating to all Canadians everywhere. <laughs> and where is the money going from this carbon tax? Well, we found out today secret recordings from a, a top bureaucrat in the Liberal government admit that a green fund was giving out, quote, free money. Get this, and a quote from the recording. It was free money, he said, before making an analogy with the controversy that affected John Chrétien's Liberal government in the 2000s. That is almost sponsor sponsorship scandal level giveaway. Wow. So when they said green fund, what they meant is putting green in the pockets of well-connected liberals. A billion dollar fund, a billion dollar fund. While Canadians cannot afford to eat, heat and house themselves, Trudeau wants to quadruple the carbon tax to 61 cents a litre in order to hand out more gifts and more giveaways to wealthy, connected liberal insiders. Oops. Oops, got caught. Got caught not with his hand in the, in the cookie jar. He got caught and in the cookie jar over <laughs> to his to some liberal friends, which is the liberal way. Uh, I keep trying to tell everybody every election, don't vote for those liberal guys over there because you know what they do. They do the same thing they always do. They take the thing and they take that thing over there and they take a thing from you and then they give it to their friends over there. And then they say, look how nice we are for giving out the things all over the place. Vote for us, we'll give you the things, but they're just giving the other things from the other guy that they took from that guy and they give it over there. And they set up programs and uh, and the programs are really designed. They say they call them social programs and it's really, uh, who, who among my friends would like uh, some cash? That's kind of the way it works. That's how they buy the votes. Liberals buy votes. That's why, this, that's why the system is cooked. 
So, you know, like as far as I'm concerned, honestly, there's nothing greedier. Like they say, greedy capitalists, capitalists. Yeah, well, <laughs> greedy capitalists, greedy capitalists invest, capitalists save. You're a capitalist if you have a retirement savings plan. You're a capitalist if, as part of your retirement plan, you've purchased stocks. That makes you a capitalist, man. Just letting you know. Okay, that's what a capitalist is. Someone who lives off the interest or benefits from the interest or even the productive capacity of capital that they invest. That's a capitalist. What's a liberal? A liberal is somebody who steals money from somebody over there and gives it to their friend over there to buy a vote. And there's nothing more, there's nothing greedier in my view than someone who uh, honestly advocates for a lot of socialism. Because after they've, uh, you know, what, the, what, what most socialists want is they want free stuff for themselves. They want free stuff for me. Give it to me. Gimme, gimme, gimme. I want free stuff. And that's what liberals do all the time. These neoliberal woke people. They tax it from there so they can buy votes from that guy over there. And they buy the votes from the regular people by saying, we're going to give you back an $11 carbon tax credit. And then you get a check in the mail after you've been taxed a hundred bucks, but they send you 11 and people go, well, JT sent me an $11 check. I'm going to vote for him because he'd give me 11 bucks. And they get fooled. And then, but the big guys, the big dudes, the big dogs, the big corps, the big corporations, they line up and they get cabillions, cabillions upon cabillions. And JT taxes the crap out of you to give it to them. And he buys the votes. And then they turn around and give him cabillions back. the gabillion dollar gabillion fund from the, you know, well, you heard the, uh, you heard the Senator even there. Well, we are centrist. Uh, we're fiscally centrist and, and we, that's because, uh, you know, we're very responsible and we need to uh, be fiscally responsible so we can run all the social programs where we pay off all our friends. That's what liberals do guys. Free stuff for all their friends free money, your money. That's their kind of socialism. <laughs> and ironically, you see, that's the thing. Conservatives always used to be the party of, they were viewed as like the capitalists. So they're the party of Bay Street and Wall Street. And yet now you see the NDP, which is supposed to be a socialist party, and they, they're pretty socialist too. They want lots of free stuff which is a trap, but they want all kinds of free stuff. And they're aligning now with the conservatives. And you know why? Because think about it again. It's the conservatives who are taking a position here that actually is to the benefit of, of common, ordinary, working class people. They're not the party of Bay Street and Wall Street. Yeah, they, I would say they're fiscally far more conservative and 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 advocate for more austerity than the liberals do. But there's Pierre Polyev saying, pause the tax on frickin' home heating oil and, and natural gas and gasoline, because these fuels 
We need these to live. People have to need these fuels to survive the winter. We don't want people to starve to death or, or to freeze to death rather or starve to death because the tax on the fuel also increases the price of the food at the supermarket and, you know, just increases the price of everything because the price of transporting anything to market goes off the scale when you have a massive tax on fuel. You want a prosperous economy, man. You need cheap fuel, affordable fuel. That will fuel the economy. That will fuel growth. That You give people cheap fuel. You know what that does? That opens up the door to mobility. So you can exercise your right to freedom of movement. So you can drive across the country and not bankrupt yourself. Give people freedom, of, the freedom of movement. Reduce the price of everything. Fuel. You got to fuel the world, fuel the country, fuel the economy. And Polyev is promising to axe that tax. Now, I don't know. I don't trust him, Rick. Well, he's a politician. What politician can you trust? Probably none of them. So you have to pick the one that you think might give you some of what they promise. Right now, he's promising to make Canada the freest country on the face of the planet. Hmm. That's a tall order especially after what we went through for the past three years. But, hey, man, what's the alternative? I'm not going to, well, we got to do this. and Yeah, okay, patriot. <laughs> I, I'm, my, my mind gets blown when I hear people talk about, you know, how they want to stage this or that or, you know, do crazy, stupid things with their government. And then they call themselves patriots. I want to save the country by destroying it. Well, we can have that conversation again another night. For now, what we should be doing is looking, I guess, at uh, Maxime Bernier, who uh, posted this today. He is concerned about immigration. All this, of course, I think related very much to the situation in the Middle East and Israel. Maxime Bernier, leader of the Conservative Party, the, uh, the People's Party of Canada. Here's what he posted. He says here, um, where are the fake conservatives of the official opposition? It's been 24 hours since the liberals announced the most destructive policy of their term increasing annual immigrant numbers for two years and maintaining that record level afterwards. But there was no reaction from Pierre Polyev and his immigration spokesman, Tom Kimmick. They don't think it's important enough to say anything. They totally agree with Trudeau on, his, on this anyway. Both parties are set to destroy Canada to compete for votes in big cities. Stop wasting your vote on these corrupt establishment parties that agree on almost everything. There is only one option. If you want this to stop, push the PPC. So, don't know. A lot of people seem to not trust Maxine Bernier either. Well, it's a low trust environment all the way around. Will he form the next government? Highly unlikely. I suppose anything can happen in politics. 
Right now, the PPC sits at about 2% in the polls. That's not nearly enough to really do anything. They're there as a party, but barely. They've, they've declined in poll numbers in recent months. They were, I think, at a, I think they, I think the PPC was peaking around five or six, but 5%. And they've lost about half of that or more, sitting at two. And Polyev riding flying high right now would form a majority if the election were to be held today. I'll tell you this. We're not going to the polls right now. JT doesn't need to. The only way we're going to the polls is if there is some major issue in the House that requires a vote and the NDP pulls their support. Something real major, and then that would become potentially a call for a confidence vote. And if that were to be if, if JT were to lose that, then that could trigger an election. But he's going to avoid that like the plague right now because he's so low in the polls. And even if he sees that he can't rise in the polls, then he's going to want to give his party time to find a new leader. So this there won't be an election in the next even six months. Maybe next summer. Maybe maybe next summer or maybe after it's coming. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he ends up resigning because the country is in such a sad, sad state. I don't think I've never seen the country in such terrible shape. He is definitely being the worst prime minister in Canadian history. The guy has got to go. He's got to go. He's bad for the country. The thing is, you know, I don't know if he's quite finished whatever destruction he's he's been told to do. It, I'm quite convinced that he's not working in the best interests of the people. As I look at even this situation in uh, with Israel, Palestine, Ukraine. I've been thinking a lot about the situation in Ukraine, you know. It was foolhardy what the West did when they encouraged Ukraine to uh, really stand up to Russia the way that they did, the way that the West really pushed Ukraine into this war. Politics is a strange thing. Some So often, somebody doing something that appears to be like direct actually is meant to have the exact opposite effect. Politics can be upside down. The language on something can be actually the opposite of what is intended. I do want to lay out a whole presentation on this another night. Ukraine is a good example of this. You know, it just seems to me it's like if you wanted to just if you were working against your own country you say let's say it's a prime i won't even pin it on jt okay but let's say there was another prime minister in there and he wanted to destroy his own country and maybe even destroy ukraine 
what would be a good way to do that? And give, if you were corrupt, say another country, let's even take Ukraine out of the, let's change the names. Say it's country U and country C. And the prime minister of country C has been bought and paid for by country D. And country D wants country U destroyed because they see country U as kind of a threat. So the prime minister, he's been told because he's bought and paid for, he's a Manchurian candidate. He's in there. He's not really working for it for country C. You do, you, you know, all he has to do is say, let's send him in, into war. Let's finance the war. We'll bankrupt ourselves, finance a war that the other country can't win, put them up against a bigger, more powerful adversary. The other country then says, well, they pushed us into it when they really maybe even welcome the opportunity to go in there because they don't like what's going on. So now they have an excuse to go in. and obliterate their enemy. Like say it's a country full of Nazis and you don't like Nazis. Now you have an excuse to go in or maybe it's not even full of Nazis, but maybe there are some. And now you've got a reason because the prime minister of country C told country U, we're going to help you, man. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. We're just going to, we're going to push right up to their border. And now they've got, now you've got a war. And so you're financing a war, saying that you're supporting country you, when in reality, you really don't mind if they get destroyed. And while you're at it, you're destroying your own country too. And then all these people get killed. I'm just saying, it's just, let's just call it a, a theory. Not even a conspiracy theory because I'm I'm not even using the names of the actual countries or the <laughs> the names of the guilty have been changed to protect the innocent. <laughs> Politics. I'm just saying a lot of the stuff that you see, the intent is actually the opposite. That's why sometimes people calling for peace don't want peace at all. They just want peace for a moment because it gives them a strategic advantage. You can't take any of it at face value. And even the people, the entities, the, the independent media feeding you lines and fear, a lot of them are lying to you too. Lies, 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 all the way around. Double speak, twi twisted meanings, things flipped upside down. No wonder people can't make sense of anything. You, you layer on artificial intelligence producing videos that look authentic that are not at all. It's a complete fabrication. And people say, it's all a movie. It's not even real. It, that's right. Uh, some of what you're seeing, a lot of what you're actually seeing is literally a movie. I'm watching it. I'm watching videos coming out of, coming out of the, the Gaza Strip 
that are absolutely 100% artificial intelligence, complete fabrications, not true. Fake, but they look real. Aerial footage of devastated that I, as I watch it very closely, you look real close. Yeah. Fake, fake, fake. Oh, you know what? That brings something to mind. I, maybe I can find it here. Somebody sent me this today. If I can find it again, I hope it's here. Don't, 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 don't. Nope. No, maybe not. Wish I could find it. Let me see. Um, is it about a laser beam destroying a house? Laser beam. I'm searching for it. Destroys house. Uh, I wish I, I wish I'd I wish I had saved the link. Maybe. Well, maybe I'll just find another one. Probably a bunch of them. I don't know. How about I take a break and I'll see if uh see if I can find it. <laughs> Oh, my. Oh, well, here's, this is a pretty good one. You'll like this. Anyway, I'll show you. This is Marjorie Taylor Greene with laser beams coming out of her eyes. <laughs> oh, my. I'm sure this is real. This, oh, 100% real, this. There she is. <laughs> oh, heat vision, just like Superman. So she could be like super politician with the heat vision coming out of her eyes. Okay, anyway, just saying. A lot of this stuff, <sighs> people are being fed, 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 a steady diet of fear. And you thought it ended after the pandemic, and it didn't at all. We're all being fed, 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 fed. I'm kind of fed up, actually. Fed right up. I'll be right back. After this, as soon as I find the thing to click on, there it goes. Here it is. I found the space lasers. The space laser destroying the house. I think it's the Klingons, but it could be the Romulans. I'm not sure. Here it comes. Here it comes. Here comes the space laser, eh? Space lasers blasting the house. 
There it is. Boom. Is that real? What do you think? Is that real? Boom. They must have thought Donald Trump was in the house. Boom. Is that real? Let's take a closer look, shall we? I don't know how to make these uh, these YouTube short things full screen. It doesn't really give you an option. I'm going to say fake. I'm going to say fake. Why do I say fake? Well, because the camera moves around. The camera moves around, right? And as it moves... The lay, everything in the, in the shot moves in position. But I'm not sure if the laser beam itself does. I don't think it's properly tracked. It's not bad. It's only there for a few frames. Laser beam strikes a house. Technology Bye, space... I don't know. Why is the uh, a space laser blowing up a house anyway? Bye. Anyway, I don't, Bye. I don't know why that girl is dressed like that. She wants to play football, but she doesn't seem to have the right equipment. Well, not that kind of equipment anyway. Um, yeah, I don't know. Looks fake as anything to me. So, fake, or is it the Klingons or the Romulans? Not sure. Could be the Death Star. Maybe. Um, I'd like to know whose house got blowed up. Let's see here. I'm just going to do a Google search. House blow, house space laser. And see, actually, this whole space laser thing, they say, is part of the um, anti-Jewish conspiracy stuff. Here, I'll show you. I'll show you. I'll show you the headlines. You just type in house space laser, and this is what I got. So it says, and this is, isn't this interesting? Because Marjorie Taylor Greene, I just showed you a picture of the lasers coming out of her eyes. And so Marjorie Taylor Greene blamed wildfire on Jewish space lasers, Jewish space lasers by Mike Rothschild. That's a, that's a book. The current rise of anti-Semitism, it says, this important book looks at how one Jewish family, the Rothschilds, became a lightning rod for the conspiracy theories of, let's take a look at that. Jewish space lasers, 3250. By Mike Rothschild. <laughs> Isn't that interesting that Mr. Rothschild, we should have such a name, writing a book about such a thing. With the current rise of anti-Semitism, this important book looks at how one Jewish family, the Rothschilds, became a lightning rod for the conspiracy theories of the last two centuries and how those theories are still very much alive today. In 2018, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene took to social media to share her suspicions 
that the California wildfires were started by space solar generators, which were funded by powerful, mysterious backers. Instantly, thousands of people rallied around her, blaming the fires on Jewish space lasers and ultimately the Rothschild family. And here's the Washington Post with their review. Uh, part of the review, here's a quote. It says, this book, dealing as it does with present-day political actors and conspiracies, is very much of its time. But it is also quite timeless in how elegantly it untangles fact from fiction. I can imagine encouraging people interested in the function and history of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories to read it for years to come. Who is this Mike Rothschild? Mike Rothschild is a journalist-focused on the intersections between internet culture and politics as seen through the dark glass of conspiracy theories. He has specialized in an investigation of the QAnon conspiracy cult since its inception in 2018 and is, and it doesn't go on from there. He has two books. One's called The Storm Is Upon Us and the other one is Jewish Space Lasers. I don't know this guy. That's the first time I've seen his book ever. That's interesting. Oh, and here's Marjorie Taylor Greene. Maybe, I guess that's why they gave her the space lasers coming out of her eyes. I didn't realize that. I didn't know that she had said these things before. There she is. Let's look at that again. This is this reminds me of Superman. There she is with these space lasers. My says Marjorie Taylor Greene press press. On Twitter, my space lasers are monitoring the chat. Be on your best behavior. That's kind of funny and yet disturbing at the same time. It is true, though, that, you know, the space laser thing, that is that is part of the whole anti-Jew, anti, you know, the whole thing, the whole narrative. That is true. It's a cliche. But, you know, people believe what they believe and you can believe what you want, I guess. I don't know. Maybe a Marjorie Taylor Greene started all the fires, all the, all the wildfires this summer. Maybe she was just like walking around going. Bzz, bzz, bzz. I don't know. Oh, what a weird world. I'll tell you this, if we had space lasers like Imagine what we could, I don't know. How's the song go? If I had a rocket launcher, some SOB would pay. Same thing with space laser. Let's take a break. I'll come back. We'll talk about other stuff on the other side of this. Don't go away. Hello, world. Are you awake? Uniting humankind by liberating millions of minds at a time. Maverick News. The world is watching. Uh, we're back, 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 and 
Um, I did this as a story for my automotive show, but you're going to want to hear this. Uh, it's all about electric vehicles. And just in the past week, I won't give you the whole, the whole thing that I did for my automotive show, but take note, take note. Things are not so rosy on the electric vehicle front. I can tell you that there has been a seismic shift happening in the, in the EV market, and it's not in a good way. The auto industry executives of the, you know, the, some of the largest auto companies are sounding off. They've, they've been doing it just in the past week, and their concerns are being heard. They're echoing across the automotive market all through social media. This week, these executives from major car manufacturers raised fresh alarms about the future of electric cars. In fact, General Motors GM, Mary Barra, who has been a very fervent advocate for electric vehicles, um, took a pretty cautious tone during GM's third quarter earnings call. Barra has been, you know, is, is, is the head of a company, General Motors, that has been a pioneer in the electric car market, not just Tesla, GM, Nissan, GM, especially after going bankrupt and receiving the bailout from government, that came with strings attached. They had to be um, pretty aggressive on the development of electric vehicles in order to make that money, um, in order to get that, that money and to save the company. In fact, GM, I would say, became very much government controlled at that point. And so they've been using GM to push the electric car agenda. Um, but they have announced that they are stepping back from some pretty aggressive targets. They're no longer committing to building 100,000 EVs in the second half of this year or another 400,000 by the first half of 2024. The future is looking uncertain for these targets, according to Mary Barra. She says that, uh, in her words, as we get further into the transformation to EV, it's a bit bumpy. Yeah, no kidding. In fact, we saw the uh, the CEO of Ford take a trip in an F-150 Lightning electric pickup truck and produced a series of videos that we shared with you here on the program, and he acknowledged as well that, you know, there are real charging issues when you take a long trip with an electric vehicle. The unease about all of this extends beyond America's borders, though. Mercedes-Benz is having to slash prices by several thousand dollars just to entice buyers to get into their electric vehicles. The company's chief financial officer, Harold Wilhelm, was blunt this week saying, this is a pretty brutal space. He questioned the sustainability this week of the current EV market. But the pricing predicament isn't limited to Mercedes-Benz. Most electric vehicles are now selling below their sticker prices. Some, are, some manufacturers are even offering incentives of nearly 10%. Dealerships are grappling with mounting inventory. It's a situation that's making car buyers smile if you want to buy an electric vehicle. But, you know, these executives are all scratching their heads like, what went wrong? 
Yeah, it's because dude, do that. <laughs> it's because the government's pushing it and it isn't what consumers want. Electric vehicles are languishing on the sales floor, taking longer to find buyers compared to their gas powered counterparts. People still want those gasoline engines. This isn't a new revelation, you know, as dealers began warning about a slowdown in EV demand a few months ago. Now manufacturers are starting to accept this as a reality. Ford, for instance, recently adjusted its plans, extending deadlines and scaling back its ambitious targets. The company pushed back its goal to produce 600,000 electric vehicles annually by a full year now and has scrapped a 2026 target to build 2 million electric vehicles. See, there's government targets and there's the government utopia that everybody thinks that they can just, these government officials, politicians, bureaucrats, whatever, they think they can just proclaim something or make something happen by writing it on a piece of paper and saying, we shall, you shall do this. And then there's reality. Honda um, is making a strategic shift. They've abandoned their plan with General Motors to co-develop an affordable EV that would cost under $30,000. Honda's CEO said this week after, and these are his words, after studying this for a year, we decided this would be difficult as a business. So at the moment, we are ending development of an affordable EV. You know, there are some voices right within the automotive industry that have been skeptical of the pure electric vehicle hype from the very start, myself included. Not that I'm really in the industry, but doing some automotive journalism. That's what I've been saying all the way along. And Akio Toyota, the chairman of Toyota Motor, has been one of the biggest skeptics. He noted, and these are his words, people are finally seeing reality. That's what he said. And he has not been, he has not taken Toyota as aggressively down the electric vehicle um, path. But because others within the company have been so pressured and concerned about coming into alignment with the EV revolution. Toyota has just in the last few months announced that, you know, they are going to be shifting more toward um, an electric vehicle future, but uh, Toyota Akio Toyota, that's T-O-Y-O-D-A, by the way. That's how they spell his last name. He has been resistant. And I think maybe he's been the wisest of them all. Because when you are on the cutting edge of a technology, if it is not immediately successful, your company will take it on the chin. You may not actually come out on top and win just because you're first to deliver the product. Sometimes it's wiser to let other companies take the bulk of the risk and just kind of come up behind and then take advantage of the new market opportunities that open up as a result of new technology that maybe you didn't have a leading hand in developing, but maybe you're there to take advantage of it on this, 
you know, the, at, at the moment when the market really becomes more opened up, if we even get that far. So it's just very clear that the auto industry's ambitious EV dreams are now facing, facing harsh scrutiny. The road ahead looks to be a lot more challenging than Biden and Trudeau and these, I would call them environmental extremists, thought. Now they're dealing not just with a, a bumpy road, they're dealing with a harsh reality, a reality check. So we'll see where it goes, man. But they've dumped so many billions of dollars into the industry. Our tax money that they've given to these auto companies to build battery plants, retool all their factories. I don't think Henry Ford had that kind of uh, government backing when he was developing the assembly line. This is our tax money. This is our future, the future of our children, the future of an industry that has for a long time been the engine that has driven the economy. They're rolling the dice and we're all taking the risk. And we're seeing already that it's not paying off the way they told us it would. And you're hearing it directly from the very well-paid CEOs who have complied with government pressure to take us down this EV revolution road. And I don't entirely blame them. They're just doing their jobs. In fact, you could say they're just following orders because there is so much government control over these large corporations, controlling them with tax grants, tax breaks, subsidies, and regulations, and loans, and just free money, just outright free money, billions of dollars. Here's billions of dollars to build a, a battery plant here. It's, it's, you know, in my mind, I don't think, I just don't even know if they've actually done really, if they've come up with a proper business plan for a lot of this stuff. I think they just, when you get government involved in the economy in this way, this is, again, politicians, bureaucrats promising you some centrally planned economic societal utopia without really keeping their plan grounded through a proper business plan. If they had a proper business plan, well thought out, well researched, we wouldn't be in this predicament right now. We wouldn't have so many of the top names, the top CEOs of these auto companies coming out. And I would say even bravely criticizing where we're at. We're, we're directing concern about where we're at with the EV market right now. This is really, really serious. If this whole thing falls apart and fails, 
if it doesn't succeed the way that they say that it was going to, we're all in a lot of trouble because the billions and billions and billions of dollars that we as taxpayers have invested in this will not pay off. And that means, you know what that means? It's not going to come back to us. We won't be able to just pay it off because the, the trade-off is supposed to be jobs, economic linkages and spinoffs that will build a more robust economy, that will put more money into the pockets of all of us by guaranteeing longer-term prosperity. And if we don't get that prosperity, we won't have the money through additional taxation over time to pay off the debts for the money that was given to the auto companies to produce these battery plants and retool all these factories that will have to be retooled and put back into production of internal combustion engine powered vehicles. And even if it is a situation where it's just not viable within the same time frame, time is money. These things have to pay off within a certain period of time or we're still in trouble. It infuriates me because the answer all along is exactly what Donald Trump has been saying. Give people a choice. Let the market decide. Let the people make their own decisions. That's not market chaos either. You know, advocates for a centrally planned economy and a lot of socialism will say, that's just chaos. How can you, you have to plan it. Yeah. You know who plans it? The individuals. They know what's best for them. You know what's best for you. You know what you want. You know it would be the best choice for you when you go to the store and you make a purchase. You decide. And by making your decision, you vote with your wallet. You send a market signal in. How much demand is there? And some of these things become consistent over time. And these companies can then respond to that. And then what you end up with is a massive number of decisions that then, you know, you get this aggregate market signal that comes in so that the people operating within the supply chains and individual companies and the bigger companies, all these companies figure it all out. And it's a very intricate system. It's the most intricate system, but it's not chaos. It's the free market with free individuals making individual decisions on their own, optimizing the efficiency of the entire system collectively across the board, but not through a, a method of economic collectivization. It's more about economic specialization to optimize everything, to give everybody the freedom to choose what they want and choose what's best for themselves, their community, even for the environment, because people ultimately will make economic decisions if given the opportunity and the freedom to do so that are to the, in the best interests of everything. I mean, nobody wants to live in a community where the stream is polluted with oil. So people don't, you know, just take their oil and dump it in the stream. Now, some companies might do that, but you know, people also vote for regulations. But anyway, I'm kind of going down another path with all of this that I didn't really intend to. I'm just saying this whole thing, government driven, government controlled, government BS.
And now we're in a bit, we can see we're in a bit of trouble here. If we can't get this thing straightened out, we're in a, we're going to be in a lot of long-term trouble with all the debt from the wars and the debt from trying to transform our economy and our auto industry into some electric vehicle utopia when they can't even mine enough lithium to supply the market and they're still having supply chain issues with after the uh you know the pandemic i can tell you that you know i get involved in auto shows i'm i'm involved with the big auto show up in ottawa there's no auto show again this year there's there's not going to be one It'll actually be next year would be the next big auto show. And that's because the auto companies are not marketing the same way. The, the advertising industry is suffering because of that. The auto companies are not advertising in the same way or at the same level. They don't need to because they don't even have enough product to, to sell. They, everything they produce, they sell anyway. And they can't produce as much product as they want to, and they're transitioning, and the entire industry has become very much government-controlled, so there's a lot less competition. That's why the prices of vehicles are kind of continue to go up, at least for the internal combustion engine stuff. And so there are actually fewer auto shows where they're trying, where they use those to target consumers directly and give people the opportunity to come in and see the vehicles firsthand in convention centers and, and peruse them and sit in them. And they're just cutting their expenses because the auto companies are not in very good shape. Some of them, you know, financially, um, at least they know that they're going to be in a little bit of trouble. And then you've got so much inflation. Now the auto workers, you know, with 20% wage hikes, 30% going in demanding 40% wage hikes and you know, striking because they see all the government money flowing in. So the unions are saying, gimme, 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 gimme. I want more, more money too, because the government's now, as soon as they they dump the billions of dollars in, suddenly the you know, the the financial ledger for these auto companies suddenly looks so much so rosy. Look at look at how much money they have. No wonder we gave them a bunch of free money for these projects. So suddenly, financially, they look very healthy indeed, but it's fake. That's not efficiency and profit in money being reinvested into the company. That's just us, government, printing money and giving it to them, and it's a tax on you and a tax on me. And if it doesn't pay off, as they call these things investments, then we all get screwed. But you know who won't suffer? The CEOs and the politicians. If it tanks, you know who suffers? You and I suffer. And that's socialism? Well, it's economic fascism, economic socialism on the fascistic side. And, uh, you know, and anyway, you slice it. Okay, you can call it whatever you want. It's, it's a form of bizarre economic disaster unfolding before our very eyes because with every investment comes risk and you know who assumes all the risk we do companies get the profits if there are any if there aren't any they get bailed out if everything tanks and there is and it turns into a disaster we get the risk we've eaten the debt and then we have to cough up even more money to bail out the big corporations because they'll say they're just too big to fail and we need to save the jobs
but people will continue to support it because they'll vote for the free stuff. And when the government says we're going to create jobs, what they're really saying, folks, when the government says they're going to create jobs in this manner is they're saying, we're going to buy you a job with your own money. How does that work out? That would work great if you were starting your own company and then you took the risk, but then you got all the reward on the other side. And that's what you would call small business. But what they're doing is taking tax dollars, giving it to a big corporation. Then turning around and saying, you know, no matter what happens, big corporation guy, if you fail, we'll bail you out. If, if not, we'll make, we'll just go back to the taxpayers over here and we'll, We'll get you more cash to make sure you're bailed out. They'll pay for it. Just put it on the working man. That's supposed to be socialism? Bizarre. Weird. Give me the free market, man. Give me the free market. And then the companies can be held accountable. Because if companies don't make it work, then the executives get fired. Their, their butt gets kicked out. They're held accountable that way. And the companies, they got to find a way to get back, get it back, get back to get back to health. Stop giving them so much money. We got to get everybody off the damn gravy train as far as I'm concerned. Because it's all a trap anyway. Anyhow. Enough of that. More stuff after this. I just want to do this one more time. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> oh, I should get her. We should try to get her on the show. Marjorie Taylor Green. <laughs> oh, small things amuse small minds. I had a teacher who used to say that all the time, and obviously he's right. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Summerfield. I can't help myself. I just can't. She got you again, guys. She got you again. Okay, what else can we talk about tonight? Uh, how about cryptocurrency? I came across this. This is a Canadian thing again. Sorry, U.S. viewers. Now it's still of interest to you. Um, I haven't listened to this. I have no idea exactly what was said. Uh, 
but I want to run a little bit of it because it seems interesting. And it's um, these law enforcement officials, global tax enforcement chiefs target cryptocurrency. And so this was today, and this was the Joint Chiefs of Global Tax Enforcement, the J5, and they hosted a virtual news conference for the launch of a challenge that will focus on cryptocurrency-related data mining and financial reporting. Since the inception of the J5 in 2018, challenges have been held to improve collaboration among J5 countries and fighting international tax crime. The Canada Revenue Agency hosted this year's challenge in Ottawa from October 30th to November 3rd. And so as part of that, there was this online, I guess they're calling it a news conference. So let's tune in, shall we? And hear what they had to say. I don't know how long we'll stick with it. If it's boring as heck, we'll dump out of it. If it is of interest, if it's holding my interest, then hopefully it's holding your interest and we'll stick with it for a little bit. But let's listen to what these guys have to say because we just had Bitcoin ban on the other night and he was talking about the future of our economy and how cryptocurrency will play into that. And these guys are sort of, you know, on the enforcement side. We talked about why governments don't like it. Well, let's find out what the deal is here, shall we? These are the dudes. Oops, hang on a second here. Dudes, 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 here is the tax dude. Okay, I've gone ahead and hit the record button. Hopefully everyone's okay with that. That's mostly for us to help with questions. Uh, welcome to the uh, J5 Challenge press conference uh, here at the end of the week. Uh, this is the fifth iteration of the challenge. Uh, you didn't come here to listen to me, so I'm going to be very brief. My name is Justin Cole. I'm the communication lead for the J5, uh, and I'm also the director of communications for IRS criminal investigation. We've got a list of uh, eight uh, very esteemed speakers for you all today. Don't worry. It's not like a high school graduation where you have uh, you know long speeches to listen to. We want to introduce uh, all eight of these uh, individuals to give you their perspective. Each of them have a different role to bring to the challenge. This was a, a new and first in many ways for us. I'm not going to uh, get into any of the speakers to steal their thunder, um, but this was our fifth iteration of the challenge took place in Ottawa. You have some speakers who are still in Ottawa, and then you have some speakers who are virtually around the country. Um, if you had received a copy of the press release, uh, that embargo is off of that now. It's certainly welcome to, uh, uh, to report on that uh, as of now. We do have a couple of new quotes that have been added. Uh, so the version that will be posted. Oh, my goodness. The, um, the version of the press uh, release that comes out uh, may be slightly different than the one you got, not in content, but just in uh, the amount of items that were um, added to that. Uh, in just a second, I'll turn it over to our first speaker. If you have any follow-up questions, please feel free to reach out to myself or uh, Genevieve, who I believe is the one who sent uh, the um, media advisories out. And uh, we will get right to it. And uh, after the last speaker, I will start to facilitate the uh, Q&A. And I would just ask that everybody, again, identify who they are and, and who their question is uh, addressed to. And then you might even get a multiple folks to, uh, to answer your questions. So um, we'll go ahead and start. And I'd like to introduce Mr. Eric Ferron, uh, Director General, the CI, I'm sorry, Criminal Investigations Directorate 
from CRA. So Eric, uh, over to you, sir. Thank you, Justin, and good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here today. Uh, the Canada Revenue Agency is very pleased to share that this past week, Canada hosted the fifth annual J5 Challenge. Since the inception of the J5, events known as challenges have been held that are aimed at tracking down those who are making a living out of facilitating and enabling international tax crime. It brings together investigators, crypto experts, data scientists from all five countries to work together in a collaborative fashion with our private sector partners. This year's challenge focused on data mining and financial reporting relating to crypto assets and technology-enabled financial threats. This year's challenge is also unique because it marks the first time that the financial intelligence units have been involved in a J5 challenge. It's also the first time that our partners from the Royal Canadian Mounting Police, the RCMP, have participated in a challenge. Having them all here with the J5 groups and our private sector partners is a great opportunity to bring together more tools and resources to combat international tax evasion. Although the week is not yet over and there is still much to be done, I'm very proud of the work that has been accomplished to date. Justin, back to you. Thank you, Eric, appreciate that. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Mr. Jim Lee, uh, who is the Chief of IRS Criminal Investigation, Jim. Yeah, thanks, Justin, and thanks, everybody, uh, for taking the time to to join us here today for this. I know we've done it a couple of times, and, you know, as Eric mentioned, this is the fifth time, actually, you know, that we've had this challenge, or some people refer to it as a sprint. I like the challenge. Um, uh, the, 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 this year's challenge uh, focused on digital assets within the financial institution reporting documents and, and public data sets uh, revolving around digital assets, and this is a this is a great concept, and I know many of you heard me say this. I usually don't miss a chance to talk about the value of this challenge because it, it cannot be overstated or said enough. And a lot of you know, some of you might not know that during this challenge, you know, public, private, partner experts from each country come together. Think about investigators, data scientists, analysts, you know, men and women around the globe in each of our jurisdictions with very unique skill sets. They gather you know, with a mission of leveraging real data from a variety of open and investigative sources available um, in each country with a specific focus on producing results. And what I mean by results is operational leads that impact each of our jurisdictions. And just like every other iteration of the challenge we have done, that's what they did this week. They're here because they're the best and the brightest in this discipline from each of our countries. And, and what they do is incredibly important. And in fact, I, I should probably just pause real quick and just thank our public partners from each of the FIU jurisdictions that, that are here, you know, and our private partners, Chainalysis, Block Trace, and OnChain, you know, for being part of the challenge this year. And, and really, you see a lot of our team members on the screen here. Thanks to all you men and women, you know, for what you do day in and day out, keeping our respective jurisdictions safe. So um, these challenges have been incredibly fruitful over the past few years. Um, and this challenge model uh, that I just referenced um, is used. It, it, it's one that I've personally replicated 
in my division uh, uh, in other areas, just because the power can't be overstated. So, um, you know, there are operational leads that we have uh, that that we're actively working, you know, that we would not have without this J5 partnership and challenge concept. So some of you might recall during our fourth chapter uh, from last year that focused on NFTs and decentralized exchanges, was able to announce a number of operational leads developed, including a $1 billion Ponzi scheme um, uh, because of this collaboration. And that case is still currently ongoing. And this challenge here has produced additional investigative results. And I think all of us are here excited, you know, that again, this group mm -hmm. produced well north of 50 investigative leads. And I, I'm general with that number of investigative leads because as we've talked about before, not all leads turn into full-blown investigations. But just know that a number of quality leads, well over 50, have again been produced. And these are what I consider, after a briefing, high-dollar, high-impact leads that have cross-jurisdiction representation. Um, and we're here to develop tax cases. But this group also identifies other investigations as well, and they have involving dark net marketplaces, child exploitation cases, pig butchering schemes. Again, this work that this group gets together, it cannot be overstated. And these are all significant focus areas for law enforcement uh, in general, because they have real impact on not just tax administrations, but real victims of horrendous crimes. So remember that our J5 collaboration is not a think tank. We don't sit around and discuss conceptual items. We are very operational. We have high expectations of ourselves. We demand a lot from our, our teams and we expect results when we get together like this. So uh, because the other part I would say, if a leader rises outside of a J5 jurisdiction, we contact our appropriate law enforcement partners. The J5 is busy. And you know, this week we're here to talk about this challenge, but I am going to take uh, just another 30 seconds to talk about uh, and, and use this as an opportunity to mention a press release that was released yesterday out of the Eastern District of New York. And while this was a, a, an FBI-led investigation, it does have J5 implications, you know, further supporting the comment that I just made that the J5 does not operate in a vacuum. So that press release revolved around founders and executives of a digital asset company. They were charged a multi-million dollar international fraud scheme uh, with various uh, uh, charges. Uh, um, defendants allegedly, misappro allegedly misappropriated millions of dollars of investor funds. Mm. So um, it revolved around a digital, that digital asset in question was SafeMoon. So I'd, I'd encourage you to go and look that uh um, press release up on that particular indictment. So, Justin, I think what I'll do, unless you want me to go back to you, I think next on the list I have, I'll turn it over to Special Agent uh, Oleg uh, Pobareko from IRSCI to give his comments. Perfect. Thank you. Oleg. Oh, good morning, everyone. Um, that was pretty interesting, I actually. It's not easy task to to speak after the Chief Eric and Chief Jim because of their exceptional speakers. Um, and they mentioned a lot of great information. The only I would like to highlight really quick Zadia's the difference low. between other J5 challenges and this ch challenge um, is that we brought the FIUs, FIUs from every single J5 country, and we sit in together at the same table and collaborate. And you know, he was talking about 
important just because of child uh, exploitation multi-million dollar scams involving cryptocurrency international operations this brings to mind the usi tech scam similar sharing that took place all the financial reporting requirements that we share so many millions of dollars were taken from people change but just it was a cryptocurrency company that just and went the Jim mentioned, I just want to highlight belly up. They were promising people huge returns over time, on, um, and, uh, and it just all fell apart. That was, uh, you know, of course, the main early in the adoption of right? but Bitcoin, but the individuals with their, uh, there's a lot of scams out there. Uh, money and the crypto assets, uh, the fiat currency derived from uh, some sort of illegal activities from, for instance, uh, from the darknet markets. Uh, drug trafficking, uh, human trafficking, child exploitation, looking into different schemes like click butchering, NFT uh, rug pulls um, at the same time. And of course, all of this leads, even if it touches the, at the money laundering nexus, at the end of the day, they will, there will be potential would be the taxable events that take, take place in our, in our jurisdictions. And I'll, I have a few minutes, uh, probably like 30 seconds left, and I just want to compare this challenge to like a boxing match. Like in a professional um, professional board, a boxing match, we have about 10 to 12 rounds, right? So the challenge is still going on. With a day four, we have a one and a half day left. So we're probably like in the round eight right now. And everyone is downstairs working together, collaborating information, and we're ready to take our leads to the next level. So our for the future operations, what we plan to do, we're planning to go back. I'll home, explain what a pig butchering scam is all of leads that we have in a moment. As, as fast as possible. Or we'll explore and, it together. Uh, make sure we so understand. Year, we talk to you. We'll have a significant operational results to deliver. Thank you. Thank you, Oleg. Appreciate it very much. Uh, we're now going to turn to Mr. Ron Wil Willems. I so hope I said that right. Here. Uh, Ron, and uh, Ron is a strategic advisor at the FIAD. So, Ron, over to you. Oh, good morning. Oh, good morning. Oh, we have a little bit echo. I'm sorry. Yeah, no it's okay. Kidding. Okay. Thank you. Uh, again, good morning. Good morning, Justin. Thank you. Um, there is a lot of uh, said already, and I don't want to repeat the uh, previous speakers. Uh, one of the most important things for us as the field is also that we can share the knowledge and that we can uh, retrieve the knowledge not only working on the leads and the investigations, but also that we make friends and that we can uh, build up a network. So after this challenge, we can also call them and, and, and reach out to them and work with them. Um, th that's one thing we are always very excited about. Um, also, one thing Oleg said, and I want to make an addition on that, that uh, we uh, don't stop after this week. We have a lot of leads, we have a lot of information, and we take it back home and work on it uh, further. So that was a little, I don't think I'm going to make the whole three minutes. Uh, I think that's, that was it for me. No, perfect. Thank you, Ron. I know you'll be available for questions uh, as well. Uh, we're now going to turn to our first uh, FIU and, and Barry McCallop, um, the Deputy Director of FinTrack. Barry, over to you. Thank you, Justin, and thank you all for being here. Um, in in Canada, FinTrack certainly has a, a very strong relationship with CRA and with the RCMP and with other law enforcement across the country. 
But this J5 challenge and having FIUs from around the world working with the J5 partners was really unique. Uh, it was an opportunity to underscore the importance of financial intelligence, how it can be leveraged across countries and across the world. These new partnerships, I think, are going to lay the groundwork for some exciting ongoing work. As mentioned, uh, this isn't something that uh, happened a few months ago and stops today. Uh, it has started and it will continue uh, to move forward with new partnerships. Um, Hyper-focused, obviously, uh, you know, in the crypto space in particular, but in the financial world, uh, it knows no borders and it goes across the world. And it's important that we all work together to address this, to save and get the victims out of these types of crimes and to stop this type of uh, money laundering and crimes from occurring across the world. I think what this J5 challenge did as well by bringing in the FIUs is it really does highlight um, that these challenges and, and the results obtained um, really underscore, highlight, and reinforce the importance of the day-to-day -day role of thousands of AML analysts that sit in our financial institutions and other reporting entities, the work that they do, the reports that they submit to FIUs, the results that can be obtained by the reports that they submit, and the importance of their day-to-day -day work, because they really are, both in Canada and around the world, the front lines in money laundering in all our regimes. And I think that these types of challenges really do uh, provide an opportunity to reward them indirectly for the work that they do on a daily basis. So. Um, thank you again for inviting the FIUs. We look forward to this collaboration in the future and congratulations to all of you on what I think is a very successful challenge this year. So back to you, Justin. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate those remarks. Um, we're now going to turn to our three private sector um, uh, folks and our first uh, speaker is Mr. Jim Daniels, Director of Investigations at Blocktrace. Jim? Hello. Are you there? Come on. Jim, by the way, can do amazing things with the computer, but is uh, having trouble getting off of mute right now. <laughs> We're going to give him. Uh, now. Is that good, Justin? There you go. We got you, Jim. Yep. Go ahead. Excellent. All right. Um, yeah, my name is Jim Daniels. I'm the director of investigations here at Blocktrace. I'm in a very unique position as a retired IRS special agent that. Uh, I have participated in the very first uh, J5 cyber challenge and have been able to participate in all of them. Uh, now being on the private side, uh, being able to see uh, both sides of, of how the impact is coming together with private partners is significant. Being able to bring in um, uh, our other private partners like Anchain and Chainalysis to be able to match that up with what the government is doing and the leads that uh, we're working on is truly significant. And it again shows the, the, the partnership agreements that, it, that are happening on these kind of challenges in the multi-country scenarios, it has been super impactful. Uh, and I've definitely seen it on both sides. So I really look forward to continuing uh, the relationship, uh, not only with the J5, but uh, with IRS CI and uh, continue to look forward to, to working on these types of investigations in the future. Well, we'll see what the next one right, is. Wonderful. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate those comments. Maybe we'll talk uh, about We're in, in the moment. final stretch here. Our last two speakers, uh, Mr. Ryan Ryder, who's the manager of investigations at Chainalysis. Ryan? Thank you, Justin. Um, as mentioned, yes, I am Ryan Ryder, manager of investigations here at Chainalysis. Um, I come from a law enforcement background I'm based out of Western Canada. 
Um, unlike my friend Jim, it is my first J5 challenge, but I'm very honored to be here. I'm also very honored to represent around 100 investigators at Chainalysis just from across the globe. Um, specific, specifically at this challenge, we had a team of about a dozen investigators working you know, around the clock on uh, operational lead generation. Um, here in Ottawa, we have uh, five of them on site um, to assist. A, a bit about chain analysis, you know, we work across public and private sectors, which it makes us kind of uniquely positioned to drive efficiencies in this ecosystem. So that's really why we're here. Um, you know, it's my opinion that, you know, we have an opportunity to make crypto the safest financial system, um, you know, thanks to its just inherent transparency. And it's, it's truly like collaborations like these um, that bring us closer to that ideal. Um, the, and again, the really nice thing with J5 is it allows us to collaborate and work from the same data sets as law enforcement agencies and regulators and together with our public sector friends from Anchain and Blocktrace, you know, without them, it's just, uh, you know, it's just fantastic to have everybody in the room together like that. And we can really work towards shutting down illicit activity and something that really isn't all that possible in uh, traditional finance. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's the analysis and that's myself and just very happy and thank you to the CRA and IRS for putting this on together here in Ottawa. Great, thanks for those comments, Ryan. And our final speaker before we open up to questions is Mr. Philip Werwall, who is the head of threat research at Anchain. Philip. Excellent, thank you, Justin. Uh, so yes, I'm Philip Werwall, I'm the head of threat research at Anchain. Um, and I think I'm just gonna echo what uh, many of the other speakers have said that this um, event has really highlighted the power of the public-private partnership. Uh, you know, the cryptocurrency ecosystem is so rapidly evolving. Things are changing so often. There's so many different aspects of it. Um, to really fight crime, fight tax, uh, money laundering and, and tax evasion, you have to bring all your tools, all your capabilities and all your expertise together. And I think this uh, event has really showed off what we can accomplish when we bring together all of our expertise and tools and capabilities. So really proud to be here and, and big thanks to uh, IRSCI for inviting us. All right, thanks, Philip. Okay, now we're at the fun part of the show where we get to uh, take some questions from uh, the media who have uh, who have joined us and, and thank you for that. So this is a way of uh, playing traffic cop. If you're on uh, the uh, the teams uh, through a computer and you're able to raise your hand on the uh, on the item here, uh, the electronic hand, that will help me see which order everyone has raised their hands. If you are calling in, or you're unable to figure that out, which uh, sometimes a lot of us have trouble finding out, that's fine if there's a space, then go ahead and just speak up. And I just ask everybody to, again, uh, let us know who you are, where you're from, and, and who your question is uh, to. So open it up to, uh, to questions now. All right, Nathan, you are up first. Go ahead. Goody, goody. Um... Just a couple of uh, uh, details to um, uh, uh, bear down a little bit on. I just want to clarify. Uh, one, was the 50 cases mentioned uh, specific to this challenge? And then just a, a, a quick follow-up uh, 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 after that is, what types of cases are you finding? Is there anything uh, non-crypto fraud? Um, are they all uh, money laundering? Is there a breakdown between tax fraud and other sorts of fraud, uh, as well as between crypto and other sorts of fraud? And Nathan is from Tax Notes. Uh, Sorry, anyone's not aware that. of Nathan? No, all good. Uh, um, Oleg, I saw you nodding. Uh, I, I know there might be others who want to jump in there. Who wants to take that question for us? Um, I will take it. Hi, Nathan. Um, good morning. Um, I just wanted to clarify that 
we have uh, over like 50, it's not the cases yet, it's the leads that we develop the lead. And uh, once we go back home, we're gonna prepare, uh, right now we're looking at all the information we have, we're gonna put them in um, a lead development package. And that what lead development package will be transmitted later to the operational case. So right now we just have a leads. Uh, but to answer the second question, we have good mixtures. Um, we have really, uh, we'll, uh, since J5, it's our main components, the tax, tax evasion, tax crimes, right? Uh, so we're looking into the tax component, but we're also finding a lot of uh, uh, leads that touches, touches the market. Laundering to transfer a significant amount of money from a dark net marketplaces and we see the, uh, the attribution uh, to the drug trafficking or to the selling of the other drugs. I, I, I'm not going to say it, but m majority of these individuals will not pay, uh, will not file a tax returns, will not uh, de declare the significant amount of how much they made from the dark net, from different schemes. Big means um, on the tax returns. So it has both angles, but uh, we have a good mixture of cases. And from a tax perspective, and money laundering. Thank you. Thank you, Oleg. Uh, Jim, I saw you come off mute. Did you have something you wanted to add to that as well? I was just going to fight Oleg um, with his with his answer there. I I love the boxing analogy, Oleg. Uh, and I think Nathan, you know, I know I've said this to you before. Um, money laundering is tax evasion in progress. So whether it's pure tax or it's money laundering that has a tax. Uh, implication, you know, in our respective jurisdictions, if there's a filing requirement, we're interested in all of it. And I, I, I think about what Oleg said about the uh, boxing analogy, which Oleg, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to sit down with you and talk. That's a great analogy because I think when you think about these crimes, I mean, we in when you when you think about the boxing analogy, we really in law enforcement. I mean, we're not fighting for a split decision here. We're fighting for the knockout punch. And a lot of these bad crimes that are out there, Oleg mentioned a couple, like the dark net marketplaces, the child exploitation, the pig butchering schemes, you know, where they're real victims, you know, whether it's tax or money laundering or both. I mean, we're, we're not going to rest until we make this space incredibly small that these bad actors are trying to operate in. So like I said, Oleg, I'll probably use that boxing analogy here uh, uh, for the rest of my time as chief. I love it. I appreciate that. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, was there anyone else who wanted to come in on that question? I don't see any other coming off of me. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Thanks, Nathan, for kicking us off. Uh, anyone else have questions for the, for the group here? All right, Mike, you're up next. Go for it. Oh, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Um, I was wondering with the uh, with the data mining technology. Uh, it sounds like like you're using the data mining uh, technology to be able to uh, ferret out uh, relationships uh, between these um, uh, schemes and and how they're using crypto. Uh, or, or are these some uh, criminals also using data mining tools as well to um, uh, like find victims from the um, the uh, information that they've gleaned? Uh, who would like to take that question for us? Yeah. You're going to have to put on mute, though. 
So um, what we're seeing is in, in certain data gathering from the criminal side, uh, airdrop scams in which people produce tokens and kind of shock them out to many, many addresses as a way of phishing or kind of trying to draw in people. Um, the targeting of those are based off of blockchain information. So they'll find people that are using platforms that are more likely to fall for these types of scams to already be involved in, you know, sketcher tokens and stuff. So we've seen for a while criminal data gathering on targeting um, when they're we're, when they're kind of going largely out to 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 many many victims. So. All right, thanks, Philip. Uh, anyone else want to come in on that one? Oh, I think I see you talking, but I think you're on mute still. Uh -oh. oh, just just to let you know, majority of us sit in the same room, so that's why we have to unmute mute every single time. Um, for data mining project, I just want to say to, uh, to, my, to answer your question, yes. Um, what we're looking at, data mining project, we all have, each country have multiple cases in the past, right? We seized a significant amount of different data sets from search warrants, from uh, every time, uh, we did any of the enforcement operations, but also we have to take into consideration there's a lot of uh, leaked data sets, right? And all of all of the uh, since once it's leaked, everyone will have uh, access to the leaked data sets, including the bad actors, and they do explore those leaked data sets to uh, to find the victims and to target the victims. And I'm probably pass it to Ron because Ron can give you one of good examples that he created. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, first of all, I want to make a little addition on the first question uh, that was from Nathan. Um, as already said, the use and abuse of cryptocurrencies is not only in the dark net uh, transactions anymore. It's been in all different criminal activities and um using uh, in that case the fiu uh, sars as a source uh, give us the uh, opportunity to uh, see all those criminal activities it's a very uh, big uh, variety and that we can have uh, focus we don't have to focus only on one criminal activity or one thing like money laundering or darknet but it's everywhere it's it's a very good uh, source for us um, the second thing, uh, what Oleg was uh, talking about, uh, well, uh, we as uh, the field, the uh, Financial Investigation and Information uh, Service from the Netherlands, are involved in different um, seized data sets like Sky ECC or EncroChat, for example. There we have a, uh, a lot of data, a lot of messages. And one thing we do, is we extract the uh, cryptocurrency addresses out from the seized data. So, for example, these are the QR codes that are uh, sent, or uh, people are sending uh, their uh, address in text. <laughs> Even they send their mnemonic phrases, but that's a different story. Um, so, what we do with this, we combine it with the data for uh, from the FIU. And why? So these data sets they are old sometimes and the data is old but cryptocurrencies we can uh, bring to the present to follow the transactions and combine with the recently uh, uh, received fiu sars and then we can uh, make it uh, 
uh, more uh, to the present. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate those comments. Uh, anyone else with questions? All right, Nathan, back up. Um, just to clarify, uh, the press, at least the initial press release, listed uh, two or three of the uh, FIUs. Uh, can you tell us uh, what the full five are? Waiting. Looks like Oleg's oh, trying to come off mute here. Hi, Nathan. Um, uh, yes, so uh, we have present five FIUs. We have FIU uh, Outstrack from Australia. We have Benchrack from Canada. Uh, we have FIU from uh, United Kingdom and uh, FIU from uh, Ministry of Finance from, from the Netherlands. And of course, I'm sorry, and uh, our FIU is Vincent from the United States. Um, on the press release, just for some of them released the quote, some they didn't, but uh, we have FIUs from five different countries, from all of our five different countries. Did you get that, Nathan? Uh, I did, thank you. Um, okay. If I can uh, ask just one last one, uh, this one will be sure. a little bit specific to Chief Lee. Um, I was very taken by the comment that uh, you have used uh, the challenge model internally, uh, apart from the J5. Uh, are there any uh, um, specific uh, types of investigations or uh, uh, public facing um, results, any sort of uh, uh, thing like that, that you can clarify uh, how CI has uh, used the challenge model internally? No, uh, thanks, Nathan. And and um, I mean, you, 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 some may think that uh, we choreographed this, but I, but we haven't. Um, can't comment on any specific investigations, but one thing that you and others are very familiar with that I've used the challenge for internally here was our BSA challenge, where we've taken where we've taken um, Bank Secrecy Act data okay. filings, all of them, and tried to uh, quantify how important BSA filings are to law enforcement uh, in the states here. And that's exactly what we did. And you might recall the BSA challenge and the infographic that we've put out. Um, that is, uh, that was tailor made for this challenge, right? Took I'm gonna public go in partners, and look at what the uh, um, pig butchering uh, Including are. our FIU, FinCEN. And again, real data that we have and tried to quantify for, for financial institutions just how significant bank secrecy data is. So that was just, that's an example. And it's, and, and, and it's a coincidence because here we're partnering with the FIUs in this uh, challenge as well. Thank you. Okay, Nathan, like next up is, uh, oh, sorry, Ola, did you have something else? I just want to add that to Nathan. Um, after this challenge, what we're working right now, actually, uh, all countries uh, got together and we're finalizing the paper. Uh, it's going to be a red flag indicator to financial institutions uh, that what we, what we learned from the challenge. And this document is going to be probably finalized by the end of this week. We're planning to release to all of our use so they can publish by, uh, by next week. Thank you. 
and it will highlight the challenge and your red flags and everything uh, looks suspicious. Um, uh, what we learned that we can share it with the financial. All right, so let's let's just uh, pull out of this. I'm going to show you now. We're almost through the whole thing anyway, I think, but um, they'll be wrapping up soon. However. Let's take a look at what a pig butchering scheme is, shall we? Doesn't that sound interesting? I've never heard that before. I don't know if you guys have. If you have, maybe you want to make a comment in the chat. So what is a pig butchering scheme? Well, here I found it. The, uh, the state government in Michigan has this information posted about them. And this is not anything, this is not what you might think it is. It's not what I thought it would be. Here we go. So cryptocurrency scam, pig butchering. So what is it? Well, it's a recent cryptocurrency scam highlighted a need for fraud awareness, according to this government website. It's a new scam called pig butchering. Includes a sophisticated new twist that combines a romance scam with an investment spin. So according to the FBI, pig butchering refers to a time-tested, heavily scripted, and contact-intensive process to fatten up the prey before slaughter. So here's how it works. It's a pig butchering scam, and it originated in Southeast Asia. It's spreading globally. The scam is predominantly executed by a ring of cryptocurrency scammers who mine dating apps and social media sites in search of victims. It involves a con artist creating a fake profile, which is used to reach out to potential victims, often through social media, WhatsApp, Tinder, or other dating sites, and even random texts masquerading as an incorrect number or an old acquaintance. The goal is to initiate a cordial discussion with the victim attempting to be their new friend or lover. Oh, the new friend creates reasons to continue a conversation, which leads to multiple calls. They slowly develop a relationship so they can insert themselves into their victim's daily life. While building trust with the victim, they slowly introduce the idea of making a business investment using cryptocurrency. The new friend employs persuasion rather than requesting money outright because they are aware that individuals are savvy and know that being asked for money by a stranger is a sign of a scam. The victim is gradually drawn into what appears to be benign talk about cryptocurrency investments and earnings, but they are really being manipulated to make an investment. The new friend slowly convinces the target to invest in cryptocurrency and refers them to a bogus website or app that looks authentic but is controlled by the scammer. The victims are encouraged to invest small amounts in the beginning, and the scammer will make sure to post it, post a modest gain on the investment. They may even allow the victim to withdraw money once or twice to convince them the process is legitimate. The victim is then persuaded to invest larger amounts on the fake platform, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. Once the money is sent to the fake investment app, the scammer vanishes, taking all the money with them, resulting in significant losses for the victim. While pig butchering often uses romance as a tactic, 
Scammers can also build other types of personal or professional relationships. They are experts who are trained to manipulate their targets, making it easy for someone to fall prey to this scam. It says here, consumers must always remain vigilant and alert for scams, especially as new financial products like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies become popular. So you see how it works. Look for red flags. Strangers sending seemingly innocuous text messages out of the blue. I get some of those. Strangers who quickly try to move the conversation to WhatsApp or another social media site. People who avoid video calling with multiple excuses or flatly refuse to initiate any kind of video calling. People chit-chatting about their insider investment knowledge. The URL of the investment platform doesn't match the official website of a popular cryptocurrency market or exchange, but may be very similar. The investment app generates warnings of being untrusted when launched, or the computer's antivirus software makes it a makes it marks it as potentially dangerous. The investment opportunity sounds too good to be true. So that's Pig butchering operation. That was actually more interesting than I thought it was going to be. Or maybe as interesting as I was hoping it would be. Learned something there. I did not know what a pig butchering operation was. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of that stuff that goes on. Attractive woman sends you a message on social media, tries to suck you in. They do it in, in other ways, too. You know, they'll try to, um, I think they will try to uh, get you to buy them plane tickets or gifts or just send them money. And uh, it's really just a new twist on an old scam, isn't it? Really, when it comes right down to it. So, and, they, and the uh, investigators involved from those different global cryptocurrency security agencies, they they kind of revealed some of their methods, investigative methods. Give us a little insight there and into how things are operating on the other side and some understanding, I think, too, of why government is concerned about cryptocurrency. And I would say there's some real justification for that. Although in our interview with Bitcoin Ben the other night, he was saying to us, you know, if you do it right, <laughs> they don't know you have it. I should point out that if you have gains, like even capital gains on cryptocurrencies, at least in Canada, and I suspect in the United States as well, you are required to pay income tax on that. And if you don't report it and you get caught, you could get a slap on the wrist or worse. So just because it's cryptocurrency, don't think that you don't pay taxes on it. The government wants, wants their cut. <laughs> they always do. They don't care if it's in dollars or Bitcoin or Ethereum or any other form of crypto. They want, they want their pound of flesh. Okay? That's the government. You want to find somebody to blame for the financial mess and for your high rates of taxation and <laughs> look no further than the government. 
Stay with me. More ahead. Coming at you. Right after this. The New World Order. Government Overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream Media Lies. Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now at freedomreporters.com. That's freedomreporters.com. Maverick News. The antivirus program for your mind. Okay, and yes, we could absolutely, we definitely do need your help to keep things rolling here. We're into a new month, and um, bills to pay. So if you're inclined, if you can, help out by donating something, greatly appreciated. You can do that by donating at oh let me get the banner up here so you know what to do uh, maverickdonations.com that's the give send go account a lot of people kind of like that christian based so you can contribute there um, but what is more popular what people where people do go is freedomreporters.com so you can support free speech over at freedomreporters.com just type in the URL and it takes you right to the donation page. That is actually through PayPal. And that seems to be the place where people prefer to, uh, to contribute. So if you want to support free speech, free, free media, and uh, what we do here as Freedom Reporters, then you can support us by donating at that URL, that website address. You can also donate through the Rumble Rants on Rumble. That works like the Super Chats on YouTube. So you can do that there. We're demonetized on YouTube, of course. And we're still not using our main channels over there because of censorship. Seems Google and YouTube, YouTube, Google, same thing. They don't much care for us sometimes. And that's okay because we're building on Rumble. So please consider liking, sharing, subscribing, and subscribe, please, on Rumble. That's our... You know, I think our main platform where we're growing the fastest, although sometimes we have some trouble and it looks like our secondary Rumble channel is having some sort of a problem tonight. It was is broadcasting, but not broadcasting. I don't know what's going on with it. It doesn't seem to be a smooth flow of video out from it. Our main Rumble channel, though, is operating properly. Thank you, everybody, for joining us there. I did dip in and took a quick look at the chat for a moment on that channel. And it looks like we've got lots of people watching tonight. So appreciate that very much. And like, 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 share, share, share over on Facebook. And if you do subscribe on our back, one of our backup YouTube channels where it's called Maverick Live, it's just like a, a tertiary channel and not a, not a primary or secondary. This is our tertiary backup channel, um, Maverick Live, YouTube. So you can check that out. And if you subscribe over there, please make sure you hit the notification bell. Now, let's take a quick look at what's going on in the Middle East tonight. I can tell you that um, Israel and Hamas um, with live up, what am I looking at here? Okay, so we've got at least 79 Americans have exited into Egypt. 
And Biden is calling for a pause to get hostages out of Gaza. So here's some highlights. Um, Israel's military is saying that its ground offensive is progressing in the north of Gaza. And they say Hamas defensive lines are collapsing. I don't know how true that is. That's the report from the Israeli side. The IDF said today that it has completely encircled Gaza City. Um, repeated Israeli strikes on densely populated refugee camp. Um, there, we've shown you that they, they had bombs dropped there and there were hundreds, maybe 150 or more civilian casualties as a result, as far as I know. Um, and that attack has drawn widespread condemnation worldwide and fueled new anger about the civilian costs of this conflict. And Biden is saying that um, this pause is needed to allow more time to get the hostages out. No signs that there's actually a deal in that regard uh, that has been struck. We've got uh, 1.4 million people now displaced in Gaza. Palestinian health officials say more than 9,000 people have now been killed there. And Israel is saying 1,400 people were killed in the Hamas attack on October 7th. 240 people still being held hostage tonight. Let's go to the White House for this news conference update with John Kirby. Okay, here we go. And the intensive diplomacy that we've been involved in, and more Americans have uh, been able to get out of Gaza today. Um, as the president said, so far, 74 U.S. citizens and family members arrived on the Egyptian side. That's in addition to the five Americans who departed Gaza yesterday. And I want to stress that these numbers are changing in real time. Embassy Cairo has deployed a consular team to the Rafah crossing to support all these folks, make sure they get back to the embassy, and then we work uh, with them on uh, onward movement as appropriate. We obviously continue to be focused on getting as many uh, Americans out as quickly as possible, and we still fully expect that more Americans will be able to depart, hopefully more today, but certainly we're looking for them to depart uh, at a similar pace if not, if not better than what uh, what we've seen. But again, I, I want to stress again, it's a fluid situation. Obviously, intensive diplomacy has been underway to open up the Gaza side of the border for foreign nationals and for some wounded Palestinians as well. In times of crisis, of course, like this, we rely on our friends. And today's positive news would not have been possible without the assistance of Qatar or, frankly, the leadership of President Sisi of Egypt, uh, who, of course, I think you know, uh, President Biden spoke to you last Sunday. We're grateful for his leadership and his efforts. Um, on the humanitarian side, yesterday, an additional 55 trucks with life-saving humanitarian assistance, including food, water, and medicine, were able to make their way into Gaza via the Rafah crossing. We're hoping that the number of trucks crossing into Gaza will continue to increase as well. We know that 55 more trucks, which brings us to more than 220 total since the 21st, is not enough. 
uh, and we're going to continue to work to get more in there. Uh, increasing that aid has been a top priority of the president and a keen focus of his diplomacy. Uh, speaking of diplomacy, today the president's going to participate in two bilateral meetings. Actually, I think he's already done the one, met with President uh, Luis Abinader of the Dominican Republic to discuss a host of shared priorities, including deepening bilateral economic ties, advancing our democratic principles and labor rights, as well as addressing the security situation in Haiti. And then later today, he's going to meet with President Gabriel Boric of Chile to discuss issues of shared concern, including promoting further economic cooperation, combating climate change, and addressing irregular migration. And of course, all of those uh, discussions, those two bilateral meetings come uh, just ahead of uh, the inaugural America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity Leaders Summit that's here at the White House. And we're glad to have the participation of all members uh, of the partnership here for this summit. The majority of them will be at the leader level. This leader summit advances President Biden's commitment to strong regional partnership in the Western Hemisphere, as he announced during last year's Summit of the Americas. Taken as a whole, this two-day summit represents a strong demonstration of the United States' commitment to work with our partners to take advantage of this once-in-a-generation opportunity to recenter critical global supply chains in the Americas, continue to address our shared migration challenge, and build meaningful economic opportunity across the hemisphere. Thank you. Um, Questions. Can you tell us a little bit more about the humanitarian pause? What that would look like? What it what it means? How long it would be? Um, how it would work? Sure. I, I think we talked about this before, Colleen. I mean, uh, we're really not just talking about like one pause. What we're trying to do is explore the idea of as many pauses that might be necessary to continue to get aid out and to continue to work to get people out safely, including hostages. The president already worked on one of such pause when we were able to get those two Americans out. And that's got, that's what we're kind of looking at. And just to remind, when we're talking about humanitarian pause, um, what we're talking about are temporary localized pauses in the fighting to meet a certain goal or goals. As I said, get A in, get people out. And is that something that can happen immediately? I mean, how, where is the Israeli prime minister on this? Is he willing to continue to do this, especially if it's more than one? Well, we were able to work with him to help get Americans out before. And, um, so we're certainly hoping that that kind of cooperation will continue. But each, each instance of it, each effort to get a pause is going to be unique in its own way. And it's going to require negotiation and diplomacy. And the president, you heard him talk about this yesterday, is 100% committed to to doing what it takes to, to pursue that kind of diplomacy. Uh, the UN Human Rights Office is raising some serious concerns about the, the Israeli airstrike at the refugee camp, saying they have serious concerns that these are disproportionate attacks that could amount to war crimes. Does the administration share the UN's concerns? We certainly don't want to see a single civilian hurt or killed in this conflict. Uh, and there's been too many deaths uh, as it is. Uh, each one is tragic in its own right, as I've said. Mary, and, uh, and we're doing everything we can to work with our Israeli counterparts to try to minimize the risk of, of, uh, of civilian deaths and collateral damage. But do you believe that this refugee camp was a legitimate target? I, I'm not in a position to say it, it is or it isn't. As I said, these are questions for the Israeli Defense Forces. These are their operations, and, and they, and only they, can speak to their targeting decisions and the way they're conducting the operations. What we are going to do is make sure that they've got the tools and capabilities, including our perspectives 
lessons that we've learned in this kind of warfare uh, as they venture into these operational decisions because they have a legitimate threat, a legitimate threat by Hamas, a, a, an organization that wants to wipe them off the map. At the same time, because you can do both, we're going to make sure that we're doing everything we can to help them minimize civilian casualties and get humanitarian assistance in. One quickly on Tuberville. Uh, he's made pretty clear this morning again that he is not going to be changing his position. Um, would the president support changing the Senate rules to get around Tuberville's blockade? That's for the Senate to decide. The president wants, as Kareem said, wants the hold lifted. I mean, it, you're talking about 375 officers at this point, 379 positions, because some of them are dual hat nominations. That's a whole lot of senior leadership that can't move right now. And let me just give you an example here, now that you maybe think of it. Let's just take a look at the Central Command region of the world. I won't go through all of it. But here's some of the, here's some of the positions that are being affected by Mr. Tuberville, the 5th Fleet Commander. That's the fleet that's in the, in the Gulf region. The Deputy 5th Fleet Commander. The Deputy Central Command Commander. The Defense Attaché to Israel. Um, the commander of the 380th Air Expeditionary Wing, the chief of staff at U.S. Central Command. Oh, and here's a good one. The deputy director of strategy, plans, and policy for U.S. Central Command. The person that actually helps write our operational plans and executes policy decisions at that level. And there's more than that. I mean, it's beyond ridiculous that this one senator is having this kind of an impact on our operational readiness. And if you don't think it, it isn't, I would urge him or anybody else who doubts this, go on down to Tampa, Florida and talk to the folks in Central Command about their priorities and what they're trying to do on behalf of the, the, the our, our administration's policy in the Middle East, especially right now with everything going on. It's having an impact. And as Kareem rightly said, it's also having a deleterious impact on family members uh, and folks who can't get schools for their kids, can't buy or rent houses, you know, don't know where they're gonna be living next. It's absolutely ridiculous. Thanks, Kirby. Um, the vice president was over in London and said that if Israel and Ukraine aid were bifurcated, that the president would veto it. Uh, we, you know, you over the last couple of days have explained that you would veto something with offsets, especially involving the IRS. But I wanted to be clear: if the president was except was presented with a clean Israel uh, funding bill without Ukraine, he would veto that as well. The president believes that the supplemental requests that we submitted contains four really critical national security urgent needs. Israel, Ukraine, uh, our Indo-Pacific resourcing, particularly when it comes to manufacturing of submarines, uh, and of course, border security. All four are important. And the whole idea of an urgent supplemental is you're submitting what you think are urgent requests, and the president wants to see all of them honored, all of them acted on by Congress, all of them together. We wouldn't have submitted it that way if we didn't believe that they all weren't important and should be acted on together. Obviously, you guys want to see them all four together, but uh, lawmakers are trying to figure out right now how to kind of negotiate through this, and yeah. it seems to be it's sort of an unclear signal from the administration. So was the vice president correct? He would be an Israel-only bill if it didn't have other issues that you were concerned about. The president would veto an only Israel bill. We, I think that we've made that clear. Thanks, uh, Admiral. The president keeps saying Israel needs to follow international law. Israel needs to follow international law. That suggests that he thinks that Israel isn't following international law, doesn't it? No. 
Why would he be saying that if he felt that Israel was doing everything it needs to do to prevent civilian casualties? We've been saying it since the very beginning, Nancy, that, that uh, we want to see our good friend and partner abide by our shared commitments to the respect for civilian life and the respect for for uh, for the law of war. We've been saying that since uh, since dang near the beginning of it. I've never heard him say that Ukraine needs to follow international law. So he seems to be making a point of this, particularly when it comes to Israel. Does that signify that he has well, there's, these are different conflicts. And Ukraine was the victim of a massive invasion by a neighboring nation. Um, and and their military operations have been with the exception of the counteroffensive where they're going after Russian positions been largely def defensive in nature. Um, it's a different situation than uh, what the Israeli Defense Forces are doing inside Gaza going after uh, Hamas terrorists uh, in a fairly aggressive way. Question about the um, evacuees, the president Nuremberg. said 70-something dual citizens Nuremberg. were able to make it out today. How many days do you anticipate it will take to get all of the Americans who want to leave out of Gaza? We don't know. I mean, as I said in my opening statement, we hope that that number can increase over coming days and, and we can get them all out very, very soon. Today's progress, I mean, yesterday it was five. Today, so far, as you and I are speaking, it's 74. We're, we're hoping that that number could increase throughout the day, hoping. Um, so that's a good sign that the, the, the trajectory is going in the right direction. We want to get them all out as soon as possible, but I couldn't put you couldn't put a date on the calendar and tell you that's it. And just very quickly, is part of the deal that none of them will stay in Egypt, that they'll all leave and go elsewhere? That's going to be up to them. I mean, they're they're free citizens. Uh, you know, they're American citizens, and they've got families to look after. And that's why we're getting them all collected uh, toward at the embassy in Cairo and our consular staff who collected them, verified all their identities, uh, you know, got them on buses, and and now we're going to be working on whatever forward, onward movement they might want. Some may not want that, but we'll we'll work that out individually with each family. Thank you, Karine. John, uh, the Israelis are saying that referring to Jabalia as a refugee camp is a, is a misnomer. Is that the position of the administration? Israel? I'll leave the Israeli Defense Forces to speak to their operations. On the bilateral with the uh, with Abinader, um, did the Dominican-Haitian border dispute come up, and what is the U.S. position on that? The discussion around Haiti was largely over the security situation in Haiti, and our continued efforts to want to work with the international community to do what we can to hold those accountable who are causing that insecurity and the violence, uh, but but also to work work on ways throughout the region to to provide relief to the Haitian people. Thanks. But John, so uh, talking about getting Americans out of Gaza, President Biden said, I want to thank our partners in the region and particularly Qatar. The leader of Hamas lives in Qatar. So why is President Biden thanking them for anything? Oh, geez, Peter. Let's take a step back here. Look at this. Jeez, Qatar Peter, was... They, they, they are a terrorist group that killed Americans and kidnapped Americans within the last month. Peter, Qatar has been helpful in getting those Americans out. I'm sure you would agree with me and everybody at your network would agree that getting American hostages out is a good thing. And Qatar was a key player in that regard. Qatar has lines of communication with Hamas that almost nobody else has. Now, I'm not saying that we support Hamas. Of course we don't. They're a terrorist organization. And Israel has an absolute right to go after them. Uh, but Qatar has lines of communication that not everybody else has. And it would be irresponsible in fact, I would expect that you and everybody else in here would be would be going after me if we weren't 
doing everything we could and having every possible conversation we can have to get Americans that are held hostage back home with their families. If we weren't doing that, it would be diplomatic malpractice. Let me read something to you, if you don't mind. Just to, just I think I want to put this into some context here. Let me tell you what we're dealing with with Hamas. Oh, geez, this is your notebook, Kareem. Okay, let's loosen up. See what you're going to say about this. Now, this this fellow at Hamas, a guy named uh, Ghazni Hamad, he did an interview a couple of days ago. He said, Israel is a country that has no place on our land. We must remove it because it constitutes a security, military, and political catastrophe to the Arab and Islamic nation that must be finished. We are not ashamed to say this with full force. We must teach Israel a lesson, and we will do this again and again. That's what the Israeli people are up against. And that's the group that are holding innocent Americans as well as 200. And you're going to say, well, then why are you talking to them? And why are you? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Why aren't we asking them to hand over the leader of this terrorist We are working with Qatar to get our people out and to help get aid in. That's a priority right now. And obviously, we're also helping Israel go after Hamas. And, And as you push the Israelis for humanitarian pauses, are they just supposed to sit back and let Hamas attack them and attack them and attack them and not fight back? We have been crystal clear that Israel has the right to defend themselves. I mean, my so goodness. Pause means they can still shoot back. My goodness, Peter, we're giving them security assistance almost every day. But do we advocate pauses by both sides here, temporary, localized, to be able to get Americans out? be able to get aid in? You betcha we do. That doesn't mean that we're calling for a general ceasefire. There's a, hang on a second. There's a difference. There's a big difference here. Um, And we understand that, as I said earlier, humanitarian pauses have to be negotiated and you have to have a a credible basis for doing it in a temporary localized way. I would also expect that we would get a lot of criticism from you and, and, and from your network and others if we just eschewed the whole idea of some sort of temporary pause so that people couldn't get out. I mean, we're doing exactly what you should be doing to try to look after these folks. So a pause does not help Hamas. A temporary pause that's localized, that would allow us to get aid in and to get our people out is a good thing for the people of Gaza. It's a good thing for the Americans that are being held hostage. And it's not going to stop Israel from defending itself because the security assistance we're, we're providing continues to flow. And a temporary pause doesn't mean a general ceasefire where the war is over. It means pause only temporary for a specific purpose. MJ, the temporary ceasefire that the president said he had convinced Prime Minister Netanyahu to put in place to get the Renans out. Can you tell us more about that? Was it localized? Was it for a short period of time? Just anything about the parameters of that? No, I won't go into the details of that since we're going to be trying to see what we can do to get additional temporary um, pauses, humanitarian pauses in place. But in order to move hostages from where they were being held to safety, it does require a, a short pause in the fighting so that you can do it safely. I mean, why wouldn't you? I mean, it, it would be it would be completely unsafe and irresponsible if you weren't trying to find some safe passage for a hostage that you got released while there's a, an area of combat going on. Andrew, Admiral, earlier this week, you had said after the first airstrike in Jabalia that it's obvious to us that Israel is trying to minimize civilian casualties. Now that you've had more time to see and assess the situation there, 
would you still say it's obvious that Israel is trying to minimize civilian casualties? We see in the scope of their operations that, that they are, are making efforts to try to minimize civilian casualties. That does not mean, and I did not say, that they aren't still causing some, that their operations aren't still causing some. They are, and each one's tragic. Each one shouldn't happen, and we've been crystal clear about that. Would you say with Jabalia specifically? I'm not gonna talk about a specific event. But, but why not? Because I'm, I'm not gonna litigate an operational event uh, that our military is not involved in, in almost real time. I'm just not gonna do that, MJ. It would be inappropriate for me to do that from the White House podium. But specifically on the question of minimizing civilian casualties, isn't an airstrike that targets a refugee camp or densely populated uh, civilian area, isn't that sort of the definition of not minimizing civilian casualties? That is a question for the Israeli Defense Forces. They should, they should have to answer questions about the decisions they're making on the battlefield and how they're doing their targeting and how they're doing their operations. Um, we're not gonna, we're not gonna throw it in from the sidelines here all the way in Washington, DC. I'll just tell you again what I've said a hundred times already. We're having daily conversations with our Israeli counterparts uh, about their thinking, about their plans, about their strategy, about the execution of that strategy and continuing to urge them to do everything they can to minimize civilian casualties. So on this, you wouldn't weigh in, even though the president and everyone on down said that the minimize, minimizing civilian casualties is incredibly important, that it's something that he is talking to his counterpart about all the time. What I said was, I'm not going to weigh in from the podium and make public uh, uh provide public analysis in near real time of operations that U.S. forces aren't involved in. Uh, thank you. Uh, Evan, given the intensity of the IDF bombing uh, across Gaza and reports that, that even areas that are considered to be safe passage are being targeted, uh, is there any concern that Americans who want to get to Rafah can't get to Rafah? And then I have a, a second question. I don't know what the status is of how many uh, of all Americans in Gaza are down at, at Rafah. I just don't know. That's a better question, question for the State Department. I do know, we believe that the, the, the vast, vast majority of American citizens who we know are in Gaza are, uh, are down there. But I can't tell you with certitude that there's not family members elsewhere that haven't made it w their way down or, or can't make their way down. The other thing I can tell you is I know the can State I, Department we're gonna pull is out in, this in, a, in a moment with all the Americans to say. in Gaza and keeping them informed, particularly those that are coming up on the lists for departure. Uh, they're being notified where to go, when to be there. Uh, and as far as I know, and again, a better question for the State Department, that, that, that there isn't... Um, that we don't that we aren't aware of American families that are trying to get down there and, and can't. But again, that's a better question for my colleagues. My second question: uh, the, the Independent has reviewed a list of the 400 Americans who have been uh, cleared to leave uh, by uh, the Egyptians, the Israelis, and and, and so forth. Uh, there have been uh, prior Just reports that with there me were for a minute, and I'm going to between uh, address something. 700 Americans in Gaza. So I'm just curious about this discrepancy. There are 400 cleared to leave. Uh, if there are several hundred more in Gaza, is there a reason that they have not been cleared to leave? Have they not asked? Uh, are they on some other list? Uh, and 
why then would the U.S. not object to U.S. passport holders not being allowed to exit? So what you're, you're talking about a rolling process here. I think our estimate is somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 U.S. citizens. And that includes, you know, dual nationals and legal permanent residents and family members. So then the, the, the pool is somewhere in that number, somewhere, somewhere there, about 400 families. But this is a rolling process of getting folks out. So uh, we know that there have been 400 that have gotten through that process, and we fully expect that the rest of them will get through that as well. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, John, I have a question on the Islamophobia strategy, but first two quick ones on Gaza. In London, the vice president said that every Gazan who wants to go back after the war will be allowed to. Does the president agree, and how will the U.S. ensure that Israel will allow this? Say that again. The vice president in London said that every Gazan who wants to go back after the war will be allowed to do that. Does the president agree, and how will ensure that Israel will allow this? Of course. I've said this before. It's nothing new. That if if that if 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 a citizen of Gaza uh, finds themselves outside of Gaza and they want to go back to their home, yeah, we absolutely support that, and we'll work with partners in the region to make it happen. And on um, still on Gaza, this week Israel released intelligence showing Hamas taking fuel from the Indonesian hospital in Gaza. Uh, it appears with the knowledge of the hospital's director. Is this something that you can confirm? Nope. Islamophobia. Uh, some of the Muslim leaders that I spoke with said that while they appreciate the effort to combat Islamophobia, they thought the timing of the announcement was interesting because this is something that the administration has been working on for months. And some of them feel that this is a political bone thrown at them and does not address their bigger concern, which is U.S. policy to support Israel, uh, where they are frustrated that their perspectives are not being heard. Your message to them. This is a very genuine effort on behalf of the president, the vice president, the entire administration to, to plan a marker um, about how hate has no business here in the United States, particularly uh, hate that can lead to real threats of violence uh, against the Muslim community, community, the Arab community, Palestinian community. Um, we take that seriously. Um, this, uh, the, the thinking that went into leading up to this strategy is uh, long-standing um, and predates the events of October 7th. Um, but again, I don't know who all these folks are necessarily, but we value their opinion. We value their perspective. Um, and even especially if it's a contrary perspective or they, they feel it's a contrary perspective, that's valuable to us. We want to, as we embrace the effort to develop this strategy, we're absolutely going to reach out to folks all across the country from. Okay. This is enough of this. Um, so I can tell you that in the last little bit, I've been receiving messages from sources, uh, just viewers, just people sending me links to videos. People want me to run things. They want access to you, you guys. And I'm trying to be very cautious and responsible about anything I'm posting related to this war. People are sending me tonight links to videos that in some cases are quite graphic. 
the thing is, as I've said, I'm running across an increasing number of instances of complete fabrications. Some of it generated with artificial intelligence that looks incredibly real. In other cases, they appear to be real clips, but I have no truth, true context in order to determine exactly what it is that we're looking at. And with the posts that are being made, there are claims. People describe what it is that they tell you you're looking at. But when I look at the clip, I can't really confirm that the video matches the context of what is being posted. And I've been caught, I think, on at least one or maybe two occasions posting video in the last couple of weeks that I'm not sure after review was accurate. So I'm trying to be very careful. And some of this stuff is being sent to me by people who I would say have maybe political motives or very strong political views one way or the other. So it's their intent to sway your opinion. And with that in mind, I'm trying to be extra cautious about what I'm sharing with you because even some of these journalists who are sending me things have motives that are very clear to me. So I'm trying to be very cautious and responsible. This whole thing, folks, this, this war, even more so than the war in Ukraine, this one between, well, this Israeli-Palestinian-Arab conflict thing that is, it's evolving into, potentially World War III kinetically, I think we're already there. This is because of social media, artificial intelligence. This is taking on a form of warfare that we have never seen before in the world. It's making it very difficult for me to navigate through this in a responsible way so that I can properly serve you. I just want you to be aware that I'm not trying to censor anything. I'm trying to provide proper context, proper balance here. And trying to provide real information in the face of escalating attempts to subvert truth with complete fabrications, which equals lies. It's extremely difficult right now to determine what the truth is. I see people trying to relitigate the past. We're still fighting over what happened in World War II. There's a funny thing about time. People think you can't travel through time. But you can. You can. Time travel is possible. These age-old conflicts, they are illustrating that for me because these age-old conflicts are coming back 
home to roost. And we're relitigating the past by manipulating the past and manipulating the future. This is very Orwellian. I was giving this a, a lot of thought this morning. I, I dream about these riddles, these enigmas, these problems. And I wake up in the, in, in the middle of the night or in the morning, and I have sometimes better clarity. And I see people fighting over what happened in World War II. People are trying to rewrite the history right now, which is one of the things that George Orwell tried to warn us about in 1984 in his story. Rewrite the past by telling us that the history we have known is a lie. And so this new history that people are trying to write is the correct version. And so there was something that was sent to me and it was someone who being, was being attacked. I won't say who online and the, the person doing the attacking, <clears throat> the person being attacked was talking about the history of world war two and Nazis. And the person attacking said that, what was the exact phrase? It was, uh, After this conflict that's evolving now, the phrase never again will take on a whole new meaning, which is to say that the intent by some people here is to show us that the past is the opposite of what we were taught. And so I'm receiving posts right now, which would reinforce that point of view, which is equal to Holocaust denial. I'm equally disturbed by people who say that the Holodomor were Jewish people being targeted by anybody other than Nazis is, is not true, or that Jewish people in Russia were targeted in the past, even, you know, prior to World War II. Jews were persecuted all over the world. They always have been. Back at the time of Jesus and since. That is an established fact. You want to, you know, the, the thing about the past, folks, is when people want to fight in the present, they tend to dig up the past because they are determined to repeat the history. And they say, well, look at what happened back then. And I've kept saying from the beginning of this whole thing, the most important lesson to learn from history is that at some point you need to let it go, lest you be destined to repeat that history. We're seeing it now. I don't, I know nobody's going to listen to me. 
but it's not going to stop me from sitting here saying it. I don't have all the answers, man. I don't even really care about all the history because at the end of the day, I just want people to stop dying. I want people to stop killing each other. And I'm really tired of listening to the history because <laughs> history has just shown us that a lot of mistakes were made and there was a lot of butchery and violence and death. People seem to just want to keep it going. It's got to stop. I don't know. So I'm really reluctant to even run a lot of this video on either side of the perspective because people are sharing this stuff. You know why they're sharing it? Because they've got a really strong view one way or the other. And I mean, I don't know. Like when I'm looking at this, I'm not seeing right and wrong. I'm seeing wrong, wrong. I mean, how far back in history do you want to go to figure out who's to blame? Who who started it? it said that's all, it's almost childish in it on a surface level, and yet so deeply serious. Nothing more serious. I I'm not, but I'm not going to just sit here um, and blindly run clips. I'm being more cautious now than ever before. I'm trying to be extremely vigilant about anything that I'm running, especially stuff that I'm finding on Twitter, Telegram, some of these channels where, honestly, there is little or no censorship. Because free speech is free speech, but some people do abuse it. And they'll, they'll run lies. People take advantage of free speech in order to lie to you and then say, well, I get to say whatever I want to say, even if it's a lie, just an outright lie. Well, what's a lie? You see, these things become very complicated. And so, yeah, I understand we don't want censorship, but at the same time, I don't really want people lying to me or deceiving me. or manipulating me by showing me videos only from one side and not giving me proper balance and perspective so that I can see both sides. So it just makes me angry and hateful toward one group or the other. That's propaganda. That's worse than propaganda. That's psychological manipulation. That's getting you to do their dirty work by getting you angry. And what I've been witnessing with politics, especially over the past three years, is a lot of people are being manipulated on all sides to the point where here in North America, in Canada and the U.S., a lot of people who think they're going out even to protest and fight, they're, they're often out there fighting for something that is actually against their own best interests because of the way we're all being manipulated and people think that they're fighting for something that is just, or they think that they're fighting for something that's for them. And in the end, they're actually engaging in a form of self-flagellation, hurting themselves, their community, their country. It's bizarre. And it has taken me a long time to really wrap my head around it because it is all new. And maybe what I'm saying to you tonight isn't resonating with you because maybe you're just, it's too complicated 
or maybe I'm not explaining it to, to you clearly because it is new. It's a new form of warfare, this information warfare. Beware people who tell you not to look at one kind of media or another. Go look at it all. You know? Because the people telling you not to look here, don't look over there, can't trust them. They don't want you to look because they're telling you the opposite of what they want you to hear. A lot of people, because of all this going on, there's actually a form of mental illness that has gripped our nations. And it's so self-destructive. And I'm so disturbed. But I pledge to you, I pledge, I will do my best to give you accurate information, to give you context, to give you information that will get you as close to the truth as possible. I pledge I will do my best to avoid being manipulated so that you are manipulated. I know that nothing I was taught in journalism school, nothing I have learned, nothing, not, none of my experience thus far as a journalist of well over three decades now, nothing has prepared me for this moment. I am learning as I go. Because the technology is new. The techniques. It's all new. They're not just dumping flyers on people from an airplane with propaganda messages on them anymore. The messages are old. The way they're delivering them is new. Don't think for one damn minute that just because you're watching independent media that they're telling you the truth either. And don't think that just because it's mainstream media that they're automatically lying to you. The problem is sometimes they do. Sometimes they have over the past three years They've destroyed much of their credibility, if not all of it. So, you know, that's the problem with lying. As soon as you get caught in a lie, people don't believe anything you say anymore. And because people tend to think in black and white, then if they catch somebody lying to them over here, and, there's, and then you hear somebody else telling you something else over there, then it must be the other guy who's right. So you automatically believe that. But it's not necessarily the truth either. Sometimes you have more than one person lying to you. And sometimes people are both telling you the truth, but it's coming from two different perspectives. It's true, but that's also true, even though it seems to be juxtaposed or in contradiction. So these images, these stills, these videos that have been sent to me, I'm not running them right now. 
I've taken a look at some of the stuff that was just sent to me. Some of them, some of the images, very disturbing. I'm going to review it. Maybe I'll sh share it with you tomorrow. Maybe I won't. If there's value in it. This is unprecedented. This is being sent to me because some people want you angry. You know, and they want you scared. And when were you scared before? When you were told there was a virus circulating around the world that was going to kill people en masse. Think about what they did to us then. And now we're into this war, another war. And we're on the edge of a kinetic third world war. And I'll tell you this, this is not going to slow down. This is going to be with us for a while. This is going to escalate. This is going to get a lot worse. A lot worse. Also, please, please hear me when I tell you this. The war is here. The war is here. And you are involved. You are being targeted. You are already victims. We all are. We're victims. We're being bombarded with information. We're all being manipulated. And in many, in many cases, as soon as you pick a side, you know what they're really doing? They're turning you into one of their soldiers. Don't lose sight of that. One side or the other. Which side are you going to pick? And once you pick, you're in. You become a tool for them. Who's them? The people on this side or the people on that side. And sometimes it seems to me it's just one group of people kind of controlling both. And I don't mean to put that out there in any kind of a cliched way to pull anybody down a rabbit hole and indoctrinate you into some sort of uh, age-old trope. Because that stuff is just too simplistic and too cliched. But there is evil in this world, too. And I'm always open, open-minded. I'll look at anything and I'll talk to just about anybody. But any of these issues. But I, you know, that's why, too, I keep saying these old political labels don't really necessarily apply anymore. I don't think they do. Not in the uh, traditional sense. Things have morphed. We've got hybrid political ideologies, things kind of little of this, little of that. Um, and yet at the core of all of them, you do find, as we've seen over the last couple of nights, um, old ideologies being recycled to form the basis of reconstituted political movements and prejudice and bigotry. People seem excited about it. In some cases, they want it. Uh, as I said earlier tonight,
We were tested during the pandemic and largely as a society, we failed the test. People said, you know, I've said for a long time, well, it couldn't happen here in our democratic society, what happened in World War II. And if you were alive in World War II, would you have stood up against Hitler? Oh, of course I would. Yeah. Well, I think you were tested. We were all tested. And a whole lot of people failed. And we've been tested again along the way, and we're being tested right now. Will you rise to the occasion or will you fail? What will I do? I need to be careful because I'm here to serve you and I don't want to let you down. Doing my best. I'll tell you this. People talk, like I said last night, about Nuremberg 2.0. Listen to the questions that were being asked in that news conference of John Kirby tonight. Listen to those questions. Those journalists, they're worried. They're worried about war crimes being committed, I think, on both sides. And the people who think that Israel is getting a pass on this stuff don't think so. Listen to those questions. They're asking about Israel and the actions that Israel is taking. When this is all over, I could see Nuremberg 2.0. But this time, I'm not so sure who would actually end up on, the, on trial. I suppose it depends on who wins the war. And as I said, time travel is possible. It is. Some people are determined to rewrite the past. And I don't even want to say the words to cast doubt on anything from the past. Because that seems so disrespectful in itself. And yet so many people, and I've seen this for a long time anyway, so many people suggesting that, uh, you know, maybe what we knew from the past isn't accurate. Or maybe it is. I know this. The lessons from the history, even if it isn't accurate, the lesson is still a good one. Even if it isn't true what we've been told about the past. The lesson is pretty damn simple. Bigotry is wrong. Prejudice is wrong. Killing people is wrong. That's the lesson. But that's in the past. Whatever it is in the past, we can't change it unless we rewrite it, in which case I guess we changed it. <laughs> and maybe people want to rewrite the past because they want to rewrite the future or write the future in the way that they want. They determined. So you see, you 
you do have time travel. We do have time travel. We can go back and change the past. Let's write it down. Make a video. Make it so. Right here. Just say it. Whatever you say can be true. The past can be a construct. It's dangerous. What's the truth? Who's telling the truth? Who's, who's truth? What truth? And time travel into the future? Again. You know? We collectively can determine what that future will be. I keep seeing this um, thing from Q. No one can stop what's coming. No one can stop what's coming. Are you an existentialist? Do you believe in fate, destiny? Or do you believe in self-determination? Do you believe that you as an individual have individual choice? Do you have the freedom to make a choice as an individual? Or are you a trained seal without a mind of your own? Are we as a society, a bunch of trained seals without, a, without minds of our own? Are we just sheep? Are all of us just sheep? That's what I'm hearing from some people. Do we as a society get to determine what the future will look like? I say yes, if we really want to. People feel powerless. I don't know, man. No one can stop what is coming. That's the message from Q that I've been seeing over the past few days. And I'm not a Q, I'm not a QAnon guy. I'm just observing. I don't buy it. 5 let's find out what the freaking truth is about what's going on right now so that we can make sure we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Even if those mistakes aren't real, let's not make those mistakes. Because if those were mistakes, because this, the lesson is still a good one. I don't believe in destiny. I don't believe in fate. I believe in me and my will my ability to determine my own future. Of course, I'm uh, impacted by external forces around me, but I get to make choices as an individual. So do you. So do we all. We get to make choices as a society. We can determine our fate. I'm not, I'm not going to entertain the notion that my vote doesn't count, that nothing matters, we don't have a say. There's no hope. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. I'm going to put out an appeal tonight, right now, too. I've been messaged over the last couple of days from a couple of sources. They've been holding back some information that I need in order to properly serve the people, to serve you. 
This is information that will peel back a new layer on a story that is very important. And if you're watching tonight, I'm appealing to you to please stop holding back and just tell me what it is that I need to know, that you know that I need to know so that I can properly serve everyone here. Please. Send me the information. All it takes is a message. I get that nugget of information. It connects a lot of dots. Answers a lot of questions. That will reveal a lot of truth. That single piece of information and you guys, you know who you are out there. And I know that you're afraid. Everybody is. Share it with me so I can do the right thing. And I hope that I can. And I pledge to you again, I will do my best to do what's right for everybody. Because that's all I'm here for, is to serve you guys, serve the people. It's my job. Send it to me. And I'll do the right thing with it. Love you guys. I'll be back tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. On the flip side.